Hey guys, it's Jessica. And this is Kendra. And you're listening to Lucid, Lucid Lab. Lab. It's our second episode in one day. I know. <laughs> We're back. We're back. We are continuing on our Halloween themed yep. month. Theme-ish. Yeah. So we've been looking for cases. So now I'm going to present my Halloween true crime case today. I'm excited. I know nothing. But before we get into that, we want to talk about the fact that we're excited. It's almost Halloween because it's one of my favorite times of the year. I never do anything, though. Maybe I'll do something this year. I'm the same way. Sometimes I don't. But every year that I do something big, I love it. Getting dressed up. I like going mm-hmm. to Halloween parties. I like making, you know, silly Halloween themed food. So you'll have a party for me to go to. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally traveling for work through the 28th of October, I think it is. So oh, well, I'm not committing myself to anything that weekend. The only thing I can ever commit to is I have to do something for my daughter. I take her out and about. There's always a lot of things going on for children. So yes. I'll do yeah. several different things with her. But I haven't dressed up in a really long time. Oh, yeah, it's been a while. Gotta get into it. It's so fun. I look for reasons to dress up. So my kids are in the anime and we go to the comic cons or they go and they've convinced me to go this upcoming year. And I am like, yeah, I'll go just for an excuse to dress up because I think and what it's are you going to be? Like some cute little anime character. Oh, okay. Uh, my kids got me into playing this game called Genshin Impact. And it's actually a really fun little game. And you can play it on your phone. And, you know, some of our younger listeners would probably know <laughs> it. But it's like a walkthrough game. And you get all these characters. And they're all so cute. Aww. And they just have cute little outfits. There's girls and boys. And so I'm going to be one of those girls. Okay. And she has little cat ears. Yeah. And she's just real cute. I was downtown Denver once at a restaurant. And it must have been one of those convention days because yeah. everybody was dressed up and it was cool. <laughs> they all have like these yeah. big long wigs. And the girl I'm going to be has really long hair. And I think mm. it's like purple or something. So I get to wear a wig and yeah. do like really cute makeup. So nice. it'll be fun. My daughter is going to be Wednesday this year. She'll make a great Wednesday. Yeah, I could become Morticia. I'm kind of there already sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> especially on days when I feel dead. <laughs> I just look like her. But so she came to me and she's like, I know you already got all the Wednesday stuff, but mom, from here on out, I'm a witch every year. Remember that I have to be a witch. I'm like, you already were a witch one year. Yeah. Don't you want to mix it she up? She just wants to be a witch. She's been reading a lot of my witchy books Mm -hmm. (laughs) like spell books and she was like really honing in on trying to like do all these potions have you did you see my bathroom yes there's like a bowl of glittery purple shit that's That's a a potion that's a potion don't know what that one does but she wasn't feeling too good and she found this little mantra spelly thing about healing and feeling better it included having to say something Along the lines of, I would read it right now, but my daughter took the book to grandma's house and she wasn't supposed to. So she has my book. Naughty, naughty. But it was something along the lines of, like, I go to bed tonight and I heal or something. I don't know. And then you wake up feeling. Yeah. Okay, I need to do that mantra. So <laughs> maybe last night would have been good. She, she said it to herself one night and she woke up the next morning and she's like, I feel better. It worked. And I, I was love like, it. Yay. Mind-body connection yeah. is what that is. Okay, now I need to find the one that she can say to herself about not believing there's ghosts in her room. <laughs> so she'll sleep in her own bed. And then maybe she'll <laughs> convince herself. You need to find a way, yeah. yeah. There's got to be something like the internet. You can write your own and like make it look legit. That's true. <laughs> I could put it on burned paper or something. Be like, look at this. Look, look what I found. You have banished <laughs> the spirits from your room. They will never bother you again. Now go to sleep. <laughs> 
so we talked about us going to our concert on yeah. the last episode. Yeah. I also got out. I guess I'm just getting out all the time lately. Uh, I went downtown Denver to see uh, the comedian Taylor Tomlinson. Yeah, she's, she's funny. hilarious. Uh, she's doing a new special right now. I'm sure it'll come out. She said it was. It, it will be a Netflix special. Oh. Um, not the one that we were at, but <laughs> it, she's practicing the material. The Denver audience was crazy a little bit. She wasn't even through her first half joke and somebody, we were on the balcony and they were like just a few rows over from us starts yelling at her. Why? I don't know. They're yelling to get her attention. And then I was like, oh, it must be part of the joke. It oh. wasn't. It was just some crazy woman yelling like, I love you, Taylor. And she was like trying to like ignore her. <laughs> no, like she was trying to start a joke with Taylor or something oh. and Taylor's like I don't know what's up must be the altitude so that became the joke the oh. whole night and then people would yell that at her because all this crazy shit just started happening at one point this lady I think she was really really drunk she got up to maybe go to the bathroom and couldn't quite make it and she like oh, fell no. over yeah and then she was just sitting in the aisle and at one point Taylor stopped her show and she's like is everything okay over there <laughs> like are we good and the lady like waved at her and then the lady just laid down oh my gosh <laughs> and she's like oh we're sleeping now like <laughs> it was just bizarre don't get too drunk before you go to places <laughs> this was a 7 p.m show i wow. mean come on yeah come on lady keep That's your shit special. together if it was midnight maybe but maybe. it was 7 we did see a few people get carted out at that concert that's true we did mm -hmm. Yeah, they walked right past us because we were in the VIP, remember? So that's the yes. backstage kind of area. And they had a walker past us and she was very gone. <laughs> I went to a concert with my 16-year-old. Oh. And it was a small concert. And even there, somebody passed out. And I told them, oh, no. you know, because they haven't been to as many concerts. And I was like, yeah. it happens at every concert, I swear. There's somebody. They take too much alcohol. They mix certain drugs that shouldn't right. be mixed together. That's true. They don't drink enough water. They yeah. lock their legs, whatever. Something somebody happens. always passes out. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> okay, well, today we're doing another true crime story. And like I said earlier, it's based on Halloween. I have chosen to do the story. It's about the murder of Martha Moxley. Martha Moxley. So on Halloween of 1975, 15-year-old Martha Moxley was found beaten and stabbed to death in the backyard of her family home. What? In the exclusive gated community of Bell Haven in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, cult? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Could be. The brutal murder of this young girl would have long-lasting effects on the community as police would hunt for her killer. Reason being, this was the place families chose to live because it was private, secure, very exclusive. Like, this is one of the most expensive places in the U.S. Wow. Everyone knew everyone. This is a place where houses were left unlocked. Keys were just left in the cars. Kids would cut through all of the backyards. Like residents didn't really have their own yards. The kids just ran oh. because it was so exclusive and right. secure. It was inconceivable to those living in one of the safest, wealthiest places in the country that someone from within their community could have committed such a horrible murder. So yeah. it was quickly decided that this must have been committed by a person outside of their community. So is this more of like a residential area? I'm picturing like it's up against woods or something. I'm going to go into more okay. about this in a minute. This is like country club. Oh, boy. Wealthiest of the wealthiest. New York City lawyers. Okay. Gossip girl. These are like mansions with acreage around them. Like wow, Rhode Island mansions. I saw those this summer in New England. It's like these. But okay. you can't even get in here because it's so exclusive. They have security. That's like, scary. It's crazy. <laughs> 
I don't want to know what goes on in those houses. <laughs> well, we're going to find out okay. what can happen here. I guess I do want to know that. <laughs> As I was saying, everybody who lived in Belhaven, they're like, no way somebody in Belhaven did this. So police were feeling the pressure to find a suspect that would fit what the community wanted to hear. There we go. What they wanted to hear. Exactly. Not what actually happened. So because of this, the case went cold for over 20 years until new information came to light through another trial. And we'll go into all the details later. But someone was convicted and it was someone who lived right across the street from Martha. So he was convicted and sentenced to 20 years for her murder. But then he was let go. This leaves the case of Martha unsolved and is still considered a cold case. But is it really? So what happened to Martha in the early hours of Halloween 1975? Was she a victim of a random transient criminal as they all wanted to believe? Could it have been the newly hired tutor that started that day in the neighborhood? That day. That day. Wow. Which is kind of like Hitter Kaifak. (laughs) Yeah. Was it her ex-boyfriend? Hmm. Could it have been the mentally disturbed college student that lived next door? Ooh. Maybe it was a couple of boys from New York City visiting the neighborhood. Or perhaps it was one of the Skakel brothers that lived right across the street. They were the last known individuals to be seen with Martha. This is like knives out. (laughs) Kind of is. (laughs) It's a murder mystery. For decades, the case has been a media sensation, grabbing headlines with the details of a gruesome murder in one of the country's most affluent suburbs. Mm. A suspect with ties to the Kennedy family and questions about the influence of wealth and privilege in our criminal justice system. Massive. So today I'm going to present the story the best that I can and I'll let you decide which one it is. Yep. I can honestly say I don't have a definitive decision on who I think committed this act, but there is one way that I'm definitely leaning. Right. And maybe it was more than one person. So Mm. I'm real curious to get into this discussion. I'm ready to hear what you think, Jessica. Oh, I'm sure I'll have an opinion. So in the summer of 1974, just a little more than a year before her murder, it's about 18 months, 14-year-old Martha Moxley moved with her parents, their names are David and Dorothy, and her older brother, John, to the wealthy New York suburb from Northern California. The Moxley family lived in Bellhaven, as I mentioned before, one of the most expensive and exclusive neighborhoods in America. So inside the gates here, there were only about 120 homes. If you look on Zillow today, you'll see that the average house prices in Bellhaven are around $5 million. Okay. The Bellhaven Peninsula is a really desirable place for families to live, according to a local real estate agent. It's on the water, it's close to town, and it's a really beautiful park-like setting. Yeah, I can picture it right now. I'll have pictures, of course. These houses would have tennis courts. Some of them had eight whole golf courses on their property. Swimming pools. They had vast gardens. They had an outdoor pool or multiple pools. Yeah. They would have guest houses. They would have, you know, multiple places to like throw parties and think like Weddings. old town. I picture the Rhode Island mansions again or think like Great Gatsby. Yeah. The Hamptons, that kind of, this is the community that we're in. Okay. So there's security guards that watch and control who goes in and out. And there's always big parties in there. Lots of socialites reside here. I was looking up who has lived here over the years. And some of the famous residents were like Diana Ross, the Bryant family. Oh, wow. uh, Because Kobe Bryant came from a very posh family. And we'll actually talk about his brother in this case. So what did Martha Moxley's family do? So David Moxley, her dad, was a partner in a large accounting firm, and her mother, Dorothy, was a stay-at-home mom. 
when they moved into Bellhaven, they actually bought a fixer upper, <laughs> oh. which was probably still like $1.5 <laughs> million right. back in the 70s. Yeah. But that was Dorothy's like passion. She liked interior design. She liked buying houses, redecorating and then making their own. So she was mm. doing a lot of that, even though she was a stay at home mom. She was busy quite often. Yeah. Painting rooms herself, things like that. She was oh, wow. just really into the interior decoration. Okay. So the house was quite large. I do have a picture of their home. And Martha, their 14-year-old daughter, had the entire third floor to herself. Wow. So she had, you know, her room. And then she probably had, she like, had her dressing own apartment. room. And, like, yeah, quite she had it quite well. Wow. Okay, now I just can't get Gossip Girl out of my head, though. <laughs> I really can't. <laughs> I kind of see that. It, but think 1970s style. Okay, so I'm just trying to think of a show like that. I don't know. Do you know one? Rich 70s. Dallas, <laughs> like Dallas, <The> socialites, <laughs> dynasty. I'm trying to think. Dynasty. What other ones were there? Just we're not old enough equivalent. to know. This is 1975. <laughs> this is before either of us. I was not born. alive yet. Neither one of us is. No. A 3,000 mile move from California to New York at like what a lot of people would consider the most awkward time of life might have shaken up other teenagers, but not Martha. Okay. Instead, she flourished. She actually mm-hmm. made more friends in her short time in Greenwich than many people make in their whole life. Wow. Classmates were drawn to her. They said she had a vivacious personality and high self-confidence. She just was a magnetic kind of charismatic person. After just nine months in town, she was voted the most popular girl at Western Junior High School. Wow. She was the quintessential California girl, and the East Coast teenagers just welcomed her. She was the blonde. That was probably why. She was bubbly, and she was from California, and they thought that was cool. It's like Twilight. (laughs) Kind of opposite. (laughs) Opposite. (laughs) So her older brother, John, recalled after her death, he said, Martha was a person who had everything in the world going for her. She was friendly. She was athletic. She was talented in the arts. Everything seemed to come very easily to Martha. She was very easy to get along with, upbeat, friendly, the kind of kid you'd like to be around. And then she had another really close friend that said she was not a wallflower. She wanted to meet everybody. Oh. She was the California girl of yeah. all of us. Everybody, everyone wanted to be. And she was beautiful. I'll have pictures. She just had this glow about her. She was just a sweet. She looked like a very sweet girl. Yeah. And that's actually my next thing is despite her popularity, her brother said she was also very family oriented and didn't mind spending time in the family's home. I mean, it's a mansion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he said he w- she would spend a lot of her time sketching in her artist's notebook or playing with her cat, Tiger. Oh, that's good. But he also said she was no goody two shoes. Right. She had a wilder side. Uh, she would miss her curfew sometimes. She's not a wallflower. No, <laughs> she would. She was known to drink beers and smoke cigarettes. Okay. Like any, I mean, she's 14, 15. She's a normal kid. Even by her mother's account, Martha loved the boys and was popular with them because she was gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) She had at least one steady boyfriend while in Greenwich. And we actually have her diary that becomes evidence in the case. Okay. And she has notes in there about flirtations with boys, but she was also very innocent. And even after her death, the autopsy made it very clear that she was a virgin. Oh, wow. Okay. So she was, you know, a little flirt, but she wasn't. Yeah, she was waiting. So in the summer of 1975, Martha was spending many of her days at the Bellhaven Club. And so the Bellhaven Club was an exclusive club for anyone who lived in the neighborhood. You just think country club, tennis, golfing, you know, fancy food. Don't piss those people off. (laughs) (laughs) 
That is where she would socialize around the pool and the tennis court. And she noticed that the teens in the neighborhood were a completely different breed than her other friends because Martha and John went to the public high school in Greenwich. Okay. So even though they lived in this very expensive neighborhood, they weren't quite on the same level as some of Mm. the other neighbors. Okay. So the children that hung out at the exclusive club that she met that summer, they generally went to private academies or they had private tutors. Mm. They went to boarding schools. So they were in a different level of wealth than the Moxleys. These were like the old money. Gotcha. How weird. I'm like trying to imagine growing up that way. And I think, you know, she came from California and she had not been part of that and yeah. then she moved into here and if she had not been quite as like charismatic or right. whatever it would have been really hard she probably would have been bullied and right but mm-hmm. because she was the cute little bubbly blonde girl yeah and she's on the east coast now where everybody's like "Ooh, you california girl yeah yeah so she was the cool one and of course all the boys wanted to date her of course because <laughs> all they have are rich snobs <laughs> right <laughs> to choose from <laughs> so at the time of her death martha was a high school sophomore She had just tried out for the cheerleading squad that year and made it. In her freshman year, she was voted as the girl with the best personality. Oh, wow. That's a good one. After her death, at least 500 friends were in attendance for her funeral. All the pews and the balcony were full at the First Lutheran Church. They even had to bring in rows of folding chairs for how many people wanted to be at her funeral. Her funeral was held on November 4th, 1975, just five days after her murder. Martha's classmates planned to start a scholarship fund in her name, and they planted a tree in remembrance of her at the school. Nice. In her eulogy, the reverend read, Martha Moxley loved life. Every day was something special. After only a short time here, she made more friends than most people make in a lifetime. She was always the first to come around, and she was fun to be around. It was an education to be with her. She made everyone she met feel as though they were her friend. It was an adventure to be with her, and we will always reminisce about the experiences we shared. Oh, she was so young. She was 15, and she already had made a big impact on the school that she was only at for 18 months. Right. So now let's talk about some of the most famous residents, and that was the Skakel family. They were the most famous? Yes. Let me tell you why. Okay. In the 1970s, the Skakel family was the most prominent and wealthiest residents of the Bellhaven community. Even by Greenwich standards, the Skakels were like another level of wealth. Wow. The family business was Great Lakes Carbon, and it's one of the largest privately held companies in the world. So privately held, they're keeping all the money. Oh, okay. They were related to the Kennedys. So Rushton Skakel, who was the patriarch of the family, his sister, Ethel Skakel, was married to Bobby Kennedy in 1950. So this is old money. I think Great Gatsby. I don't know why. Like just that kind of family. Skakel. Skakel. last name. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the Skakel money, like I said, came from Great Lakes Carbon. And the Kennedy fortune had come primarily from liquor. Oh, Okay. By some reports, the Skakels were even richer than the Kennedys. Wow. So Ethel's father, George Skakel, this is just a little bit of history, socialite. Yeah. Uh, what's the word? Gossip. Okay. <laughs> so supposedly Ethel's father, George Skakel, despised Bobby's father, Joe Kennedy. Oh, boy. <laughs> In fact, Skakel would refer to Joe Kennedy as a low life Irish trash. Yeah, you <laughs> piece of trash. <laughs> 
So there was like this love hate relationship between the Kennedys and the Skakels. And I mm-hmm. only bring this up because later when one of the Skakel boys is in trouble in trouble, the Kennedys do not like that their name gets dragged into this oh. case. And they are still very adamant today that they do not want their name associated with the Martha Moxley case. Well, I'm sorry. We're talking about you now. Sorry. Sorry. So the Skakels, like the Kennedys, were a large Catholic family. Catholic families like to have a lot of kids. So mm-hmm. Rushton and Ann Skakel had seven children. Okay. Six boys and one girl. Oh, poor girl. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so there's Rushton Jr. and he was 19 and they would call him Rush. And then there was Julie and she was 18. Unfortunately for her being like the oldest and a daughter, she was going to be surrogate mom. Then we oh, had yeah. Okay. yeah. Then we had Thomas, who goes by Tommy, and we'll talk a lot about him. He was seventeen. There was John, who was sixteen. Michael, who was fifteen, and then David and Stephen, and they were twelve and nine. Jeez, she was just like one after the other there for a minute. This lady was pregnant her whole marriage. The Skakels are also right up there with the Kennedys as far as the tragedy department. Now we all okay. know the Kennedys have this long list. Well, the Skakels do too. Okay. Ethel and Rushton's parents were killed in a private plane crash in 1955. Their brother, George, was also killed in a plane crash. Jeez. And his wife choked to death on a piece of meat at a small dinner party. They didn't have life back. (laughs) (laughs) And then Rushton, who is the patriarch, his wife, Anne Skakel, she actually died from, it says an agonizing death. I think that was was like one of these long battles with cancer she had brain cancer and she had just passed in 1973 so this was you have a family of seven and the mom passed away Yikes! and that left Rushton in charge of a family of six sons and one daughter wow and Rushton was also gone all the time because he was you know Mr. CEO or whatever right so the Skakel boys were known to be very wild and able to pretty much do whatever Whatever they they wanted wanted. (laughs) Especially we're going to focus in this story on Tommy and Michael. So Tommy was the 17-year-old and Michael was the 15-year-old. Okay. According to neighbors and family friends, the Skakel children were given unlimited amounts of money and were largely unsupervised. Oh boy, that sounds fun. Their father was out of town often for work and he left the younger children with their staff because they were very wealthy and they had a full staff of, you know, maids nannies gardeners tutors and when you're that rich the staff sometimes become the parents and the ones that they're close to and then the other person that unfortunately for her became the main like i said surrogate mother was the daughter the one girl in the family julie and she was 18 and i feel for her because she has six boys just running around Uh, all the time jerky rambunctious kids getting in trouble yeah to be the only girl (laughs) ah no way So Tommy and Michael had well-documented emotional and anger problems during school. Tommy had fallen out of the car at age four. Somehow, I don't know if it's like one of those situations where he just opened the door. He fell out of a moving car. Okay. And he had some major head injuries. Oh, no. So we'll talk about that. Frontal cortex. We know Mm -hmm. what that does. It was well-documented and therapists believe that that led to some of his behavioral and emotional problems. Okay. And then he loses his mom. Right. And they're all dealing with that, too. It was said that Tommy always felt loved by his family. So he's the 17-year-old, but Michael felt like an outsider. So Michael was always acting out, most often because he was jealous of his older brothers. He felt like he wasn't getting enough attention. And From who? 
from his mom, his dad, the staff, whatever. Okay. There's just a lot of conversation about how Tommy and Michael were very competitive with each other for whatever reason. So the 17 and the 15, they had a brother in between them that was 16, but he's yeah. never mentioned. Weird. So it was really just something about their personalities. Okay. And Michael began abusing alcohol right after his mother's death. He was only 13 years old. Wow. Okay. He was a poor student and he had flunked out of a dozen schools and he also struggled for years with dyslexia, but nobody knew that. He wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia until he was 26 years old. Oh, wow. It was also rumored or maybe it wasn't rumored. I think it was pretty well known that Rushton was an alcoholic. The father. The father. Because there's a Rushton kid, right? Yes. We won't ever talk about him too much. It's really just Tommy and Michael. And then Rushton was the dad and it was known that he was alcoholic. He could be occasionally violent with the kids and he could also be emotionally abusive. Mm. So I'm just setting the scene for this family. I can see that. The staff that worked for the Skakel family would also mention that Michael could be very hard to contain once he got into his anger fit. So he would like get into anger like kind of uncontrollably. Okay. There were also rumors that the kids, and this would be specifically Michael as well, would terrorize animals in the neighborhood. (sighs) No. Michael even bragged to some of his friends about killing cats and squirrels. Oh, no. With golf clubs. Ugh. Which is a pretty sick way. So the Skakel children all attended private school. And like I said before, Martha attended Greenwich High. So they didn't really know each other until that summer when they met at the Bellhaven Club. Okay. And she became friendly with Tommy and Michael. They were like the more, I think, outgoing ones. And they both took an interest in her. Of course they did. So you have the 17-year-old Tommy Mm -hmm. that likes her. And then Michael, who's the same age as her. Okay. In a letter she wrote to a friend that summer, she said that Tommy kept hitting on her, but she really wasn't interested in him. Oh, not going for the older one, huh? (laughs) (laughs) She kept a diary, and in her entries, she described her relationship with the Skakel brothers a couple times. The month before she died, she wrote about going for ice cream with Michael and Tommy, and she said, We went driving in Tom's car, and I was practically sitting on Tom's lap. He kept putting his hand on my knee. Oh. In another entry, she wrote, This was on September 19th, so about a month before her death. She said, Michael was so totally out of it that he was being a real ass. I really have to stop going over to their house. Oh. So this is like just some build up. Okay. I need to get my daughter to start writing in diaries. I think, yeah, the diaries (laughs) are going to help. On October 4th, 1975, a little over three weeks before her murder, Martha wrote, I went to a party. Tom was being an ass. At the dance, he kept putting his arms around me and trying to make moves. So (laughs) this is all we really know at this point. Martha's mother did not know the Skakel boys, and she had no idea her daughter was even hanging out with these kids because this was the kind of neighborhood where everybody would just go out and run around. Right. And there were a lot of, you know, girls that she hung out with in this neighborhood as well. And there were several of her friends when she told them she met the Skakel boys and she was hanging out with them. They told her, I wouldn't hang out with that family. And she was like, why not? They seem nice. And she's like, there's just something about them that scares me. Ooh. And that was from one of her good friends. Oh, no. So I've set the kind of the cast of characters. <laughs> yeah. And now we'll go into the actual story. So we've got Martha Moxley living in Haven, And she's had some run-ins for the last like four or five months with the Skakel brothers. Mm-hmm. So it's October 30th, 1975. And David Moxley, Martha's father, he was in Atlanta for a work meeting. And typically the family, they were very close family and Dorothy being a stay at home mom, she would cook a full sit down meal every night and they would all have family dinner. Wow. That was just what they did. Living in a mansion though. (laughs) Yeah. So weird. (laughs) 
she they didn't have staff they yeah. weren't they weren't the same level of wealth as everyone else so i'm thinking okay. they're in like the cheapest house in the whole neighborhood probably <laughs> That's how i think about the moxley's mm-hmm. they're like the poor cousins to everybody else even though in they're Bellhaven. way richer than even us. though <laughs> yes any other city they would be like the wealthiest but right. in Bellhaven, they were the poor ones Gotta cook your own meals <laughs> yeah they're like you don't have five kitchen people come on so because David was out of town and it was the night before Halloween and they were getting ready for a party that Martha was going to throw for Halloween. Oh. So her mother was just like, you know what? We're not going to cook dinner tonight. And her older brother, John, was also going out to hang with friends. So she just made Martha a quick grilled cheese sandwich that night. And then Martha was going to head out to hang with her friends. Mm, grilled cheese. Sounds good. It does. I want some. Well, we had some last, last night. night. <laughs> it was really good. It was good. Um, so Martha didn't have an established curfew, but she had just gotten in trouble the previous week because her parents Mm. kind of, I don't know if maybe this was in the seventies, if this was just the way it was, but they would be like, we trust you to come home at when you know is probably the appropriate time. Interesting. She had come home a week before at 3am and they're like, not the appropriate time. (laughs) So her own choice. (laughs) So her mom's like, uh, you can go out tonight, but she was expecting her to be home probably around 10 o'clock or, you know, Apparently, right around 10 o'clock. They didn't know that serial killers existed yet. It's the, the 70s, 70s. But that's when all the serial <laughs> killers existed. We were slowly finding out about them. So like I said, the next day was Halloween and she was planning to host a party. So she was like, Mom, I'm not going to stay out very late anyways. I need to come home and get things ready for my party tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. This year, Halloween was on a Friday. And so the schools were actually out. So they had a three-day holiday weekend because I guess... It makes sense. The teacher's like, why have school on a Friday, Halloween? Nobody's going to do anything, right? You don't do anything until night, though. I don't know. Whatever. Give it to me off, too, then. (laughs) (laughs) I want a three-day weekend every weekend. Yes. So in Greenwich, and I don't know if this is across the whole nation, but they talk about it in Greenwich, the night before Halloween was known as Mischief Night. Oh, shit. So this is when groups of teenagers would get together and, like, go cause a ruckus like the boys right they would go out they would be like toilet papering houses okay they would be putting like shaving cream in mailboxes they would actually her brother i was reading somewhere that her brother had gone out with friends and they had bought like three dozen eggs to go egg eggs places yeah just shit like that putting soap in the fountains you know the things that teenagers do (laughs) because they're bored especially in the 70s maybe i don't know (laughs) but it was a freezing cold night it was a really early start to winter this year for Halloween. So the kids didn't really want to be outside too much. Yeah. So they weren't doing much mischief. In fact, (laughs) most of them were just hanging out in each other's houses that night. So around 7 p.m. is when Martha left her house and she was going to meet up with her friends in the neighborhood. So she was just walking over and she met up with three of her friends, Helen, Jackie and Jeffrey. They had plans to go over to the Skakel's house around 7.30 p.m. And that was where they were maybe going to go do some toilet papering, some kind of mischief just for a little while. Every time you say the word mischief, I'm thinking of Nightmare Before Christmas. (laughs) Mischief. (laughs) Just picturing those little helpers. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) For the boogeyman. So they showed up at the Skakel house around 7.30 p.m. And Julie answered the door and she was like, oh, Michael and Tommy aren't back. They went to the Bellhaven Club for dinner. So come back later. I think about this neighborhood. They were just wandering around and they went to another neighbor's house and was like, hi, how's it going? And this is a woman that had younger kids. She didn't even have high school kids for them to hang out with. But she oh. invited them in and they all like had ice cream. We hung out with her little kids. OK, it was just, just a very wholesome little community. Because they're, they're so far apart. They're like, well, to get anywhere else, we're going to have to walk far. <laughs> so we might as well stop here and get ice cream. They're probably walking <laughs> half a mile in between each house. And that's yeah. the truth. 
so Jackie had to be home by 9 p.m. That was her curfew. So then they were like, well, let's walk Jackie home. And so they dropped her off. And then Martha, Helen, and Jeffrey went back to the Skakel's house. So it's now around 9 p.m. They walked up to the driveway and Michael was there and he said, hey, I've got a new eight track tape <laughs> because it's the 70s. Woo-hoo. The four of them jumped into the uh, Skakel's Lincoln Town car oh, and they wow. were just sitting there listening to music in the driveway. Wow. So Martha was sitting up front with Michael and then Helen and Jeff were sitting in the back of the car. And about 15 minutes later, Tommy came running out of the house and he was like, I need to get a tape out of the car. And he opened the door and he saw Martha in there and he was like, oh, I want to listen to what y'all are listening in. Oh, boy. And so then he told Martha to scoot over. So then Martha was sitting between Michael and Tommy. Oh, boy. And, you know, he decided to stay and flirt with Martha. Martha, Martha, Martha. He put his hand on her leg and she loudly told him to get his hand off her leg. (laughs) Oh, wow. Good job, Martha. Michael was kind of sitting there watching and Michael had the hots for Martha, too. And so he didn't like this. He's like sitting Mm -hmm. there watching his older brother put the moves on the girl he wants. Right. Not so good. It was also said that they both seemed like they maybe had been indulging in some drinks. Okay. So they're both a little buzzed and more rambunctious than usual. It's actually very normal for this family. I think all of them, or at least these two boys we know, were drinking alcohol quite often. Okay. So they're hanging out there doing what kids do. And around 9.30 p.m., Julie comes out and says she needs the car. So get out. (laughs) (laughs) Older sister takes priority. She needs to take one of her friends home. Mm -hmm. And then she was also like, hey, by the way, they had a cousin over. His name was Jimmy. And she's like, I'm taking Jimmy back to his house. And this was the night of the U.S. premiere of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh, okay. Which back in the 70s, you couldn't just get TV whenever you wanted. It would premiere on a certain day at time and you needed to be there and you had to have the channel. And the Skakels did not have whatever. Interesting. They didn't have it? I know. (laughs) You wouldn't think, but they were saying like certain like receptions back then, everything was with an antenna. So maybe Jimmy's house had a better reception to get this. So they're like, let's all go to Jimmy's house to watch the Flying Circus. It was the Skakel, the younger brothers were going and they were like, Michael, Tommy, you should go with us. Then Michael looked at Martha and said, Martha, do you want to come watch the show with us too? And she's like, I can't stay out very late. So I'm probably not. I'm just going to go home. And when she said that, Tommy changed Mm. his mind and was like you know what I don't really want to watch it and he decided to stay behind okay but Michael had already committed to going with his cousin so he was kind of stuck in this conundrum he's like damn it I'm gonna leave her with Tommy exactly so you can just (laughs) already feel the like tension Michael got in the car and left and Tommy stayed behind with Martha and Martha's two friends Helen and Jeff were still there and now according to Helen and Jeff Martha and Tommy started engaging in more flirtatious behavior Mm -hmm. they were saying it actually got really uncomfortable because I don't know if you've ever hung out with like when two people are flirting too much and they're like yeah so into each other I think the other friends were like okay this is just boring Mm, like go get a room She was like climbing on his shoulders and he was like tickling her, that kind of flirtatious behavior. And then the other two kids are like, you know what? I don't need to watch this show anymore. We're going to (laughs) go home. And so they left. Okay. They said as they were walking away, they saw Tommy and Martha play fighting and that Martha was laying on the ground and Tommy like fell on top of her like he was wrestling with her. They didn't know as they were walking away that that would be the last time they would ever see their friend. Oh, no. So this is actually all we know. Oh. This is the last account okay. of anybody seeing Martha. Oh, wow. Outside okay. of what we're going to hear from Tommy. Okay. That was around 930 when Helen and Jeff left. So they're our last like credible third party witnesses. 
So around 9.45 p.m., so just 15 minutes later, many neighbors in Belhaven would report some kind of commotion. It was so loud, it actually caused all of the dogs in the neighborhood to just go crazy. Like all the dogs were just going off at once. And so it was an event that got everybody's attention because, you know, dogs would bark here and there, but every single one of of them them. just went crazy. Okay. Well, yeah, one heard one and then that heard the other one. And yes. And (laughs) some of the neighbors said they walked out and looked like on their porches, like what's going on. And this would be used later in the police investigation. In their mind, the defining moment of when the murder had to have taken place. And they used this to establish time of death, which we'll talk about if that's really credible or not. Okay. Because time of death will be important to decide who could have Mm, done this crime. Okay. Gotcha. And maybe they use time of death to say that someone could not have been the murderer. If only we could speak dog. They were telling us. (laughs) They were. They were trying to get. Tommy's killing her. Tommy's (laughs) killing her. Ruff, ruff. (laughs) Exactly. Or was it someone else? Or was it someone else? (laughs) So Dorothy Moxley is at home. She's been painting one of the upstairs bedroom and she notices it's around 10 o'clock. So she starts cleaning up and she's going to go downstairs to get a snack and watch some TV she realizes Martha's not home. She's not real worried. She told Martha around 10, but it's her daughter. And she's like, yeah. you know, she'll probably show up at 11, whatever. Right. So around 11.20 p.m., her son, John, arrives home. He had been out hanging with his friends on mischief night, throwing <laughs> eggs. Yeah. <laughs> and at that time, she made a comment to John. And she's like, you know, Martha isn't home yet. It's really funny. I don't really know where she would be because it's 11.20 right. p.m. Yeah. So John, as the good older brother, he's like, I'll go out and look for her. I'm sure she's just out, you know, losing track of time. So he hops in his car and he cruised around the neighborhood for about 30 minutes and he didn't see any sign of her. And there weren't really many kids out at all for him to even ask. So it's pretty quiet in the neighborhood. So then Dorothy was watching TV and she just fell asleep as we always do watching TV. Mm -hmm. And then she wakes up around midnight and she went upstairs and she checked Martha's room and Martha wasn't there. So now she's worried. Yeah. And she's like, okay. So she begins making phone calls to like Martha's friends, moms to just see, Mm -hmm. you know, where she was. So she called Helen and Helen was like, no, I left her around 930. Um, She was with Tommy Skakel. Now, Dorothy doesn't know the Skakel family very well at all. I mean, she knows of them, though. She knows of them, but she didn't really know them and the fact that her daughter was hanging out with them. She didn't have their number. She'd never been to their house, that kind of situation. Okay. So Helen gave Dorothy the Skakel household number. Dorothy calls the Skakel household and Julie answers because she's the responsible one. <laughs> right. And Dorothy's like, hey, I heard Martha was over at your house. And Julie's like, yeah, yeah, she was earlier. Let me go upstairs and ask Tommy where she is. Where she is. Yeah. And so she goes upstairs and Tommy's like, yeah, she was over here. He says, I left her. Uh, she was walking home around 930 p.m. And he said, I had to come back inside because I needed to work on a paper for school. Hmm. Julie relayed that story and Dorothy's like, "Okay, well, let me know if anything comes up. But the hours just kept passing and Dorothy now is becoming very concerned. Yeah. She actually called the Skakel house a couple more times. Julie answered the phone every single time. Oh, no. And then Julie has an idea. She's like, you know what? Maybe call the Tareen household. Maybe Martha did end up going over to watch the Flying Circus. Maybe she left after Tommy and then went over there to join the other kids to watch Monty Python. Called there. Nobody's seen her. And so she's frantic now. And she's just continuing to call everybody. At this point, like most of the neighborhood's been woken up probably by a call. And everybody knows Martha Moxley hasn't come home. This is happening after midnight. It's now 3.30 in the morning. Wow. 
and John is up and he's like, I'm going to go back out and look for my sister. So he gets in the car and he's just driving around and he doesn't see anything. And Dorothy's like, this is this is odd. And so at 3.48 a.m., she calls the police department and reports that her daughter's missing. But she stayed out till 3 a.m. that one day. If she had been worried about her, she probably would have been able to find out that she was at a party or something right. by then. Find her at that At this point, point she's called everyone she can think right. of that Martha knows and nobody's mm-hmm. seen her. The only thing she has right now from anyone is that she was with Tommy at 9.30 and 9:30. then nobody's seen her. Right. Which is dark. 9.30? Yeah. Yeah, especially in the fall. And this is a large neighborhood. There's streetlights, but I I imagine just in between, it's probably pretty dark between the houses since Mm -hmm. there's so much space. Right. So the patrol shows up at her house and they search throughout the Moxley house and they go out to a small cottage that's on the Moxley property. They don't find anything or any clues about where she could be. They also make a sweep of the neighborhood. They're driving around. They're shining flashlights, just hoping they'll see her walking down the street or maybe passed out in a yard or, you know, walking Mm -hmm. somewhere. They search until 7 a.m. with nothing. At this point, Dorothy falls asleep from exhaustion. <laughs> oh, no. Poor thing. She's yeah. probably just mentally exhausted. And then she wakes back up and it's 10 a.m. Oh, no. At this time, she's like, you know what? I'm going to go over to the Skakel household because she knows that's the last person right. that saw her daughter. So mm-hmm. she gets dressed and she goes across the street and she knocks on the door. And Michael Skakel is the one that answers. She said, Michael Skakel looks like a pile of trash, basically. (laughs) She says he's pale. He's like got like crumpled up clothes on. She said he just looks like a pile of trash. A pile of trash. He's hungover, obviously. (laughs) Right. He's been out doing something. Yeah. So Michael's like, nope, haven't seen her. And basically just closes the door. Doesn't Mm -hmm. really let her in or anything. So she didn't really think much of it. But she's like, whatever. She'd heard the family's kind of weird. Okay. So then she calls the police again and she said they weren't that concerned because it was just a teenager. It was mischief night. And Mm -hmm. they said teenagers go missing all the time and then they show up by like the next day at some point. So they were just thinking she's at somebody's house passed out drunk. Okay. But Dorothy's worried right now. She's like, this isn't like my daughter. And I've checked in with all of her friends. This is not the case with my daughter. And so then she called her close girlfriends and they all came over because they were worried and her husband's gone to Atlanta. And so all of her friends are over here sitting with her because she's just tied up in knots, worried about her daughter. She calls her husband in Atlanta, tells him he needs to come home as soon as possible. Something's happened. They can't find Martha. Oh, so scary. I know my stomach knots up thinking about this right now. Around 12.15 p.m., Sheila McGuire, also a 15-year-old, and she was actually walking over to the Moxley property. She knew nothing about Martha going missing, and she was just coming over to knock on the door and see if Martha wanted to go into town and go Mm. shopping. Yeah. So as she's walking across the very large property towards the Moxley household, she notices something under a large pine tree. Oh, no. She gets a little bit closer, and she realizes it's a person. The partially clothed body of her friend, Martha. No. She starts running towards the Moxley house, rings the doorbell, and she says, Martha's in the backyard. And her mom is like, is she okay? Oh, no. And Sheila's like, I don't think so. Oh, no. And they called the police. And one of her friends went out with Sheila where it was while they waited for the cops. Partially clothed. Partially clothed. Okay. So Steve Carroll was among the first investigators from the Greenwich Police Department to show up and to walk up to Martha's body. 
He said it was a maniacal attack that should have stopped, but didn't. Oh, no. He said we didn't even know what color hair she had because it was blood red and all of the blows or damage were to her head. And then they could see a path where she had been dragged down (gasps) in the high grass to her final resting place under the pine tree. Someone brought her there? Somebody dragged her there. They could see this whole path. There's actually crime scene photos that she was dragged. So where she was found was not where the crime took place. Right. Her blue jeans and panties were pulled down to her knees. But she was still a virgin, so she wasn't raped, right? Right. There was no actual sign of sexual assault, and this will be a a whole conversation in this case. But she did have her pants pulled down. Okay. With the drag marks, there was like a trail of blood. They could tell she had been dragged face down because there were chips in her face where she had been dragged. Jeez. Lacerations. They traced it all the way back to the Moxley driveway, which was gravel. So her face had been dragged even across the gravel of the driveway. Jeez. These places are so huge that she's missing and no one sees this stuff. No, because so crazy. Yeah, because there's like a forested area between her house and Sheila's house that they all walk through. I mean, she didn't go very long without being found. It's only been a few hours, honestly. They had traced it all the way back to the Moxley driveway. They found one small spot of blood and then they found another larger pool of blood right off of the driveway under another tree, a smaller tree that was just to the side of the driveway, but closer to the house. So she was killed at her house? So that is, they determined that's where the main attack took place. And then whoever killed her realized that she would have been too exposed and then drug her body to a more secure place, I guess. No one's going to hear you doing this? I mean, the dogs maybe did. While tracing the drag marks of her body, they discovered pieces of what they believed to be the murder weapon. It was a golf club. (gasps) Mm, Okay. They found a golf club head and two pieces of golf club shaft measuring 8 and 11 inches long. The police immediately assumed that the handle and another portion of the shaft were missing from the crime scene. Now, that handle would be very important because that's probably where the DNA would be. The club was identified to be a Tony Pena six iron club. She had been struck so violently that the shaft of the golf club shattered. (gasps) That's what she was stabbed with. And the assailant continued wailing on her and drove a portion of the broken shaft through her neck and windpipe. (gasps) And that was what was believed to be the finishing blow that killed Martha. Oh, my God. This is brutal. A fucking golf club. Dude, she doesn't want you. Get over it. A 15-year-old girl, you, like, beat her to death with a golf club. That's crazy. So Greenwich police, they did not have the resources or experience to handle a murder case. In fact, they had police officers that had been on the force for over 30 years who had never investigated a homicide. For Arpana, that's kind of the same thing. Because well, they were in a expensive both area. affluent places. And yeah. So there's going to be a lot of ineptitude here yeah. or maybe, but they knew that they needed to call in somebody From above outside. them. So they called yeah. in the Connecticut State Police and they sent out a mobile crime lab to come and secure the scene. Here's the problem. It took them forever to get there. Yeah. The scene was completely open. Steve Carroll said it was so disorganized. The Greenwich police didn't know what the fuck they were doing. I've read a couple of books and I've seen several news articles about this case where there are investigators that swear up and down when they first got to the scene, the handle of the golf club was under her head. And then now it's gone? And now it's gone. And the official reports show that they could never find the handle of the golf club. Hmm. But there are those who swear up and down that it was there. Because these are all rich people. Someone's covering for someone. That's one of the thoughts. 
So Steve Carroll, the one that was first there, he said it was very disorganized. They didn't know what they were doing. He said detectives began canvassing the neighborhood and the scene wasn't fully contained. So onlookers were around and they were able to access different parts of the yard, like just... Kind of like I think of Henry Kaifek and some of the other, but this is 1975. They should have known what the fuck they were doing, right? But they didn't. When the crime scene van finally showed up, they pulled into the driveway and they drove right over the spot where they now believe the initial blow to Martha occurred. What's so the they like fuck? drove right? Well, because obviously the cops who were there, they didn't like cordon it off in any way so that they knew where it was. They didn't know They're what to do. They're just showing up. They never done a homicide investigation. They're just like, uh, let's just go walk around the neighborhood. And they started asking questions of neighbors. They didn't know what else to do. They did not know how to secure a crime so scene. So now the mom has her literal blood on tire marks. It's horrible. Word got out real quick because this is Greenwich and murders don't happen here. And all the neighbors and the people were looky-loos, like I say, at every crime scene. And they all started talking right away. And they were like, no way this was someone in the community. It was probably a transient that wandered into Bellhaven from the nearby Connecticut Turnpike. And that's who had to have killed Martha Moxley. Of course, because you're hiding the fact that your brother or uncle did it. <laughs> So much of the investigative resources from the Greenwich Police Department were directed towards finding the golf club handle. That was Mm -hmm. the number one thing they needed to get the DNA evidence. They didn't have much DNA tracking back in the 70s, but it probably would have been enough with the fingerprints. Exactly. So they searched the neighborhood with metal detectors. They were climbing up trees on the Moxley property. They drained pools and ponds. They had divers going to Long Island Sound. They were searching all the storage basements in the neighborhood and Mm. they didn't find anything. They actually even issued a press release and they described the piece of the weapon in case anyone found it that was just out anywhere in Greenwich. Right. They actually received scores and scores of broken golf clubs at the station, but none of them matched. Oh, this was a very specific type of golf club. We're going to go into it more here in a minute, but this isn't something most people would have. Really wealthy. Gotcha. So on October 31st, while they were canvassing the Skakel property, police discovered a matching golf club that came from the same set as the six iron that was used to kill Martha. And it came from a set owned by Ann Skakel, Michael and Tommy's late mom. Oh, okay. They were able to confirm that no other set of Tony Penna clubs were owned by residents in the whole neighborhood. Had to come from this set. Oh my goodness. Well, that's specific. So after interviewing those at the Skakel residence, they were able to determine that Tommy Skakel was the last person to see Martha alive. And so they took him down to the station for a formal statement. It's only been 24 hours since Martha's body was found and they honed in on Tommy Skakel as the most likely suspect based on the reports from himself, his sister, the friends and his brothers that they had all seen him with Martha at 9.30 p.m. But Tommy wouldn't be the only suspect. So on November 1st, an autopsy was completed by Dr. Elliot Gross. He was the Connecticut chief medical examiner at the time. A few details were leaked, such as the cause of death, the multiple head wounds caused by a golf club and the fact that Martha had not been sexually assaulted or under the influence of drugs. Well, that's good. At least they're not trying to say it was her fault or something. Exactly. The time of death was established as a window between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. They established this based on the contents of her stomach. So I mentioned the grilled cheese and the ice cream earlier for that reason. There was nothing left in her stomach. Based on what she ate, that means that she had to have died at least four hours after her last meal. We know that she had grilled cheese around 7 p.m. Or 6.30 p.m. I'm sorry. So really it's like 10.30. They left it at 10 p.m. because I am not real sure. 
The other problem is that the crime scene lab didn't show up till later. Her body was like laying out in the elements and the way that the body was moved and then the fact that they waited for the Connecticut chief medical examiner to do the autopsy, it was days later. And so they couldn't rigor mortis and lividity they mm-hmm. couldn't use that. So really stomach contents was the only thing that they had to try and establish a time of death. So it was very. Yeah. The other thing really odd about this case is that the autopsy to this day has never been publicly released. Mm. Why? Because the Kennedys had something Seems to do with it. Suspicious. <laughs> real suspicious. Tommy was their main suspect, but he wasn't actually their first suspect. Their first one was a boy named Ed Hammond, and he was a 26-year-old grad student from Columbia Business School, and he lived right next door to the Moxleys. But it's the mother's golf clubs. Well, here's what they have to say about that. Skako Brothers, they just left their shit laying around all over the neighborhood. Mm. Those golf clubs had been seen laying around everywhere. They can't say it was only available to the Skakel family because of those situations. Oh, they didn't hurt her. They just kill animals and stuff, but that's fine. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) So Ed Hammond emerged as a suspect. He was a 26-year-old grad student at Columbia Business School, and he lived right next door to the Moxleys. He came under suspicion on the first day because neighbors reported him as someone that acted oddly at times. How dare you act oddly? Don't be odd. (laughs) At 3 p.m. on October 31st, police brought Ed down to the station for questioning and they searched his residence and they had full consent from Ed's mother, who was the owner of the home, to search everything. There was no evidence found to connect him and he passed the polygraph test. So there was really nothing there other than some neighbors saying he's weird. He's a weird guy. They did keep him in the line of suspects for a while, but nothing ever came of that. He's weird, but smart. Exactly. He's in Columbia. Right. He's probably just one of those super smart people with bad social skills. Yep. So we go back to Tommy Skakel. He's got to be the guy. After initial questioning on October 31st, Tommy was asked to take a polygraph test on November 3rd. Tommy's dad, Rush, did agree to the test and they were taken to the Connecticut State Police Office. After three separate tests, the results were inconclusive. They said Tommy had not been sleeping well. He was too exhausted and he was just anxious about it. So that's probably why they couldn't get an accurate reading. And he agreed to take another test one week later. Hmm. He did pass this test one week later. However, although police say Tommy passed the test, they never released any documents showing what questions were asked. And there's speculation that the test performed was very high level. Like it could have just been like two questions like, what's your name? Did you kill Martha? Maybe they didn't even ask him those types of questions. Nobody knows. It wasn't released. Did you eat grilled cheese? (laughs) All we know is the police did not eliminate him as a suspect, even though he passed this test. So there must have been reason for them to not throw him out. So suspicion in the town quickly rose that Tommy was the killer. Greenwich police dismissed this as gossip. And in a press conference, the police chief even complained about the irresponsible and groundless rumors going around the town. And there was an editorial in the paper that told the community to like chill it out, stop trying to be detectives. And they needed to be careful before accusing a 17 year old boy of murder without true cause. Okay, which I kind of agree with. Yeah, Just because he was the last one seen with her doesn't necessarily mean he killed her. So at first, the Skakel family, specifically Rushton, were very cooperative with the police. The Greenwich police never got a formal search warrant for their property because they felt like they were allowed to go in whenever they wanted. Mm. Rushton would open the door. He even gave them a set of keys for them to search the family's ski cabin in upstate New York. Weird. So he fully believed his kids were innocent and was just opening it up and saying, yeah, whatever you need, we'll help. 
As the months dragged on and on and no other suspects emerged, the police were still focused on Tommy as the likely culprit, especially when they had a re-interview with Helen and Jeffrey in December. And that was the time when Helen and Jeffrey both mentioned that there was this flirtatious horseplay going on between Tommy and Martha. Okay. And they mentioned that he was pushing and shoving her at the back door when they left around 9.30 p.m. This caused a new theory to emerge for the police officers. They decided at that perhaps Martha had spurned Tommy's advances. He, you know, wanted to go further mm-hmm. than she did. And then he became enraged when she wouldn't let him. Right. And that led him to killing her. Mm-hmm. So he was brought in again for questioning. And he agreed to let the police take his hair samples Okay, but it, he's going to show up on her, though. Yeah, they true. were roughhousing. There is no DNA in this. Oh, okay. Like, in this case, there's no DNA. The crime scene had been so tampered yeah. with. It was outside. There was nothing they could do. Right. The main thing they were looking for was that handle of the golf club. That right. was, like, their winning ticket, and they didn't have it, and they really didn't have much else to go on. Maybe that's why Rushton is like, yeah, come on in, because they went to him and gave him the handle. He did something with that's it. That's what, that would be one of my thoughts, yeah. is that he already knows. He already paid whatever police officer to cover the things up that would connect his kids. Or he just did something with it, and he literally knew there was no other evidence. So, yeah, come in. Yeah. In early January, they received written authorization from Rushton Skakel to obtain Tommy's medical and school records. But then it was quickly rescinded as Rushton received those records from the school and medical facilities first before they went to the police. And I think he saw something in there that he knew would condemn his child or at least make him more suspicious. He began speaking with lawyers. They suspected that the police were trying to build a case to arrest Tommy in the near future. And so Rushton got a top criminal defense attorney for his son and told the police he would no longer allow them to complete a background check on Tommy or interview the family further. Okay. He also cut off all access to the house searches. And like I said earlier, they never got a real warrant. So they can't use it. Yep. Right. (laughs) Give me my keys back. (laughs) The only thing he did allow was for the police to speak with his hired staff members from the Skakel household. Now, one of the main household staff members that the police kept going back to was a man named Ken Littleton. We'll talk about him here in a minute because he also becomes a suspect. Okay. He becomes a suspect because he refused to sign a statement indicating that circumstantial evidence pointed towards Tommy Skakel as the likely murderer of Martha Moxley. Why would he not want to sign a statement? Yeah, I'm like, well, he doesn't want to sign a statement that it's Tommy because that's his boss's kid. Yeah, and why would you sign that? Or maybe he knows more. Maybe. So once the Skakel family would no longer cooperate with the police, they didn't really know where to go. And cops aren't rich like them, so I mean. (laughs) They didn't really have any other people to research, so it kind of just was fizzling out. In March of 1976, Tommy began being absent from school often, and supposedly he had the flu, that's what they said. But we found out that he was admitted to the hospital for hemorrhagic gastritis. So that's bleeding from the stomach and intestines, and that's a condition often caused by drug and alcohol abuse. Right. In late March, Rushton Skakel himself showed up at the Moxley household. He was rumored to be very drunk, and he told the parents that he was there to set their minds at ease, and it was definitely not Tommy who killed Martha. Russian said that he had undergone several tests, and they all proved negative that Tommy was the killer. And then David Moxley, Martha's dad, was like, well, have you shared these tests with the police? Like, who's doing these investigations? And Rushton said, no, none of this will be shared with the police. My lawyers are saying 
not to cooperate with the police. It was almost Mm. like he was trying to be a good neighbor in a way. He just wanted to come over there and be like, hey, I'm doing my own investigation on the side. It's not Tommy. But he was also super drunk when he showed up over there. Well, (laughs) so the Moxleys, of course, because it's their daughter involved, they went to the police and they actually hired their own attorney to assist them and the police in obtaining whatever this private investigation was that Russian was doing because they're like this involves our daughter right we have a right to the information so they were able to get those test results and their lawyer hired a credible doctor to review all of the results and that doctor after reviewing everything said that it clearly indicated that Tommy was not the killer okay Uh, what kind of results I'm guessing it's polygraph. It doesn't really go into a lot of detail. What is a a doctor doing with Tommy? They did this really shitty polygraph test that didn't prove anything. And then Rushton's like, I don't think Tommy did it. Probably Tommy's telling his dad, I didn't do it. Right. He's strung out on drugs and alcohol probably because he's stressed out. He's not sleeping. Like Tommy's Mm -hmm. having a hard time and his dad's trying to figure out what happened. And so he took him to all of these like super high dollar, I'm sure, polygraph test places. Mm Mm-hmm. And supposedly those showed that he did not do it. So in fall of 1976, the police really didn't know what else to do. They had nothing to go after, but they thought they got a break in the case. And this was based on Ken Littleton. He had been arrested in Nantucket. Okay. And while he was arrested, he had undergone a polygraph test and apparently had mentioned a question about the Moxley homicide and he failed that question. Mm -hmm. And several people in Nantucket also told police that Littleton had been acting in a bizarre way all summer long. And so the police thought this is interesting because he left the Skakel household. Now he's in Nantucket acting really weird. Yeah. And he just failed a polygraph test when asked specifically about the Moxley murder. At this point, the police were like, Tommy Skakel, who? And started focusing their whole case on making Ken Littleton the suspect. Okay. Who is Ken? He was a 23-year-old graduate of Williams College, and he taught science and coached sports at the exclusive Brunswick School in Greenwich. Hmm. Three of the Skakel boys attended that school. How was he staffed? He had been... <laughs> I'm about to go into it. <laughs> okay. He had been hired by Rushton Skakel to be a live-in tutor for his sons and oh. to help curb their wild ways. Okay. So he was going to be like you said, a tutor. Oh, that's right. and it was his first day, though. It was his very first day. My God. His first night on the job turned out to be the night of the murder. <sighs> He's another hired hand that started his new job on the worst day possible. He's like, I'm here. And At then least a murder he happens. didn't die, but now he's just being but now blamed he's, for yeah, it. He's the outsider, right? He's right. the guy that just showed up. But I'm thinking if it's your first day on the job, you, you probably don't, don't murder the cute little girl across sure. the street. Right. But, you know, you know, what do I know? Whatever. Let's reconstruct what he was doing that evening. Okay. So on October 30th, he took some of the Skakel children to the Bellhaven Club for dinner since their father was actually away on a hunting holiday. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but Russian was not okay. there when all of this went down. Mm-hmm. He was he was often gone. But he, he was, was hunting. He was off hunting and leaving his kids behind to this brand new 23 year old tutor and his 18-year-old daughter. It was said that a few of them, including Tommy and Michael, drank considerably, although they were only teenagers. This totally reminds me of Gossip Girl because remember they would right. all just go out and drink. Yep. Same thing happening here. There's mm-hmm. no indication that Ken Littleton or the club said they couldn't drink. Interesting. I'm sure Ken was kind yeah. of afraid of them. He's like, it's my first day and the club people are serving I mean, them. he's young too, though. He's 23. Too. Maybe he's yeah. partying with them. Who knows? Possibly. Ken said that about a dozen friends, including Martha Moxley, did come over to the Skakel house after they returned for dinner. And then he said some of the Skakel boys went over to the house of their cousin, Jimmy Tureen, to watch 
Monty Python. And it sounds like no one really bothered to check in with Ken Littleton whether they could leave or not. Like he was just kind of there, but they weren't he wasn't an authority figure in their no. mind. They're just like, we're going to do what we're going to do. Oh, Wait, you're is he even the new a tutor. babysitter. What are you going to tutor them on? Reading the menu? I don't know. Why I think you're taking them to dinner. I think already? he was just a glorified babysitter. I think so. Their dad wanted to go hunting and he's like, um, well, Julie probably needs some help. So I'll just hire this guy. So after that night, he did stay on at the Skakel household for another year. And then it was said that he had a falling out with Rushton. I don't know what it was about. Nobody does. But he had been interrogated a few times for his story. But he once again became the main suspect based on his arrest in Nantucket. Now, it would have been a great convenience for everyone to blame the murder of Martha on the tutor. Yeah. Now, the experience of this night virtually ruined Littleton's life. As we said, he was arrested in Nantucket. He was actually arrested for grand larceny, mm-hmm. which I believe is like theft, yeah. right? Like auto. It's like something really expensive that he stole. He became an alcoholic. He became addicted to drugs. Mm. It's possible that Littleton knew more than he told the police. Probably. It's his first day. These kids are fucked up. He probably saw, he something. saw something. Yeah. And we're going to go into that more because it is part of one of the big theories that I haven't gotten to yet. Okay. But there was nothing to tie him to the actual murder of Martha Moxley. But he was this great up and comer and his life just went fucking downhill into the tubes wow. after this, which is really, really sad. Yeah. After they ruled out Ken Littleton as a suspect, they came to a complete standstill and the case went cold for 14 years. It's a long time. During this time, the Moxley family continued to push and they were hiring their own investigators, but nothing fruitful came of it. Sadly, David Moxley would die of a heart attack in Aww, 1988. He never guy. was able to find out and maybe he died of a of heartbreak. Like, yeah. You know, this was 13 years after his little girl died and he couldn't find answers. And that sucks. It's really sad. Yeah. Her mom, Dorothy, moved to Annapolis, Maryland, and she made the mission in her life now to get justice for her daughter. She made herself available to any and every journalist that wanted to talk about Martha. She wanted to keep her memory alive and interest in solving the case a top priority. Okay. So good mama because she kept it going. Yeah. There was I saw so many interviews with Dorothy and she's like elderly. She may not be alive now, but she was elderly at the time when they were interviewing her. And she was just like, I'm just a stay at home mom. I have nothing better to do except figure out what happened to my baby. Yeah, it becomes your life. They're your life. And if they're taken from you, they're still your life. And her husband passed away. And like she had nothing. I mean, she had her one son that was still alive and he's great. But Mm -hmm. like, I think I would be very much the same. Although you always feel too for the other siblings because they're right there with you and they don't get the attention Yeah, it's such a complicated situation. Yeah. So let's fast forward to 1991. So we are now 16 years after Martha was murdered. No answers. Nobody's been arrested. But there was a trial for rape in West Palm Beach. And the person on trial was William Kennedy Smith. Oh, Kennedys. (laughs) So we're back (laughs) to the Kennedys. Yeah. They did not leave for long. During this, there was a rumor circulating because he was convicted for rape. The rumor circulating was that Willie Kennedy Smith had actually been an overnight guest at the Skakel house in Greenwich the night that Martha Moxley was killed. (gasps) Okay. Well, it ended up this rumor was completely bogus. Oh, darn. (laughs) Willie Kennedy Smith had not been in the Skakel house that night. And they think that the rumor started because they said there was a Kennedy cousin at the house that night. The Kennedy Uh, cousin was Jimmy Tureen. But what this did do is it brought more interest into the Moxley case again. Nobody had been talking about it for years. And it just reinvigorated the case. Okay. With this, there was a well-known 
author and journalist named Dominic Dunn. This is an interesting thing, and I kind of want to do a case on Dominic Dunn. So Dominic Dunn had a daughter who was the oldest girl in the Poltergeist movies. She has like long, dark hair. I looked her up. His daughter was murdered on October 30th. Oh, And so he like made this bond with Dorothy Moxley. Okay. He called her and he said, I know what it's like to lose a child. Mm -hmm. And he had been, he's an investigative reporter who would look into like unsolved murders and he would write books. And so he approached Dorothy and he said, can I write something about your daughter? Because he had heard about it through this court case for William Kennedy Smith. He was Mm -hmm. looking for his next project and he saw Martha Moxley. And so it was like this whole like universe kind of coming together together. and his daughter had also been killed on October 30th. They became like kindred spirits because they bonded over the fact that they had lost daughters and Mm -hmm. he was like, can I interview you? I want to write a book about Martha. So he released his book. It was called A Season in Purgatory in 1993 and it quickly made the bestseller list. Now this book was written as a fiction story. Okay. It was based on Martha Moxley, but it was about a family that lived in this nice neighborhood and there were some boys next door that were Mm. rough and tumble and Martha it wasn't Martha in the book but the girl in the book was beaten to death by a baseball bat oh so Dominic changed a few of the details because he didn't want to get sued by the Kennedy family (laughs) or the Skakels actually they're just as scary as the Kennedys and now their last name is the Freckles and no (laughs) (laughs) exactly Because this book made bestseller list, Dominic Dunn was all of a sudden all over television doing interviews. And he was talking about the fact that he based this book on the murder of Martha Moxley. Okay. And he also mentioned that he had been in close contact and had become good friends with Dorothy Moxley and that she had given him the blessing to write his book. And then the CBS Evening News did a long segment on how the book had helped to revive interest in this 1975 murder case in Greenwich, Connecticut. Yeah. So at this time, in certain houses in Greenwich, the subject was being discussed again for the first time in years. But no one came forward. No. So Dominic Dunn is out on book tour, and he's in Denver, Mm. Colorado. Oh, a lot of people come here. (laughs) (laughs) He's at a bookstore, and he's approached by a woman who says she's a forensic psychologist. Mm. And she said, I have something. Let's meet. And she brought him autopsy pictures from the crime scene that had never been seen by anyone, had never been published. Mm -hmm. And they were from the Greenwich Police Department. According to Dunn, they were large photographs, about 11 by 14 inches, and they were absolutely awful to behold. He said, it's one thing to discuss being bludgeoned by a golf club, but it's quite another to see the effects of such an attack. Right. He said one of the blows had taken off a portion of the right side of Martha's scalp. Oh. And it was hanging on by a piece of skin over Mm. her face. He said you could see the wound where a short pointed piece of the shaft had been stabbed into the side of her neck. And he could see where her jeans had been pulled down. He said, I felt faint when seeing it. And he said, I don't want to see any more. This woman whose name he would not give out there. Mm -hmm. And he said he trusted her. She seemed to be very knowledgeable. She had been hired as like a contractor for the police. They actually tried to go after her when they found out she released the autopsy pictures. But they they had nothing. But anyway, she had been hired as a contractor and then they let her go. And she snuck out with these autopsy pictures because I think she knew there was a cover up coming. And she wanted to make sure that she had this for a rainy day. She was. He said he really trusted her. And as she was leaving, she said... It was not Tommy. Okay. I really didn't feel like it was Tommy the whole time, though. 
And Dominic said at that time, he was fully convinced that Tommy was the one who had done it. And he was going to like be putting more and more pressure Mm -hmm. on finding Tommy. But this woman was like, it definitely wasn't him. Okay. Interestingly enough, just in the interactions between Martha and the boys, I definitely just got the sense that Tommy, he liked her. And Michael was more like, well, I'm the shy one and I like her too. And you're pissing me off. And they both had emotional problems, but Michael was the one that had more. Okay. And we're going to get into all of this. Don't okay. you worry. Don't I worry. Michael's coming back around. Michael. So we're now into 1996. Dominic Dunn would be approached by another mysterious character with information about the Moxley case. So they're mm. all like hiding. And this is the thing that really gets to me. It's like when there is a prominent family involved, people right. are afraid. Right. Because they know that they could be killed. But now. They could be sued. But now it's out there because Mm -hmm. Dominic is out there with this book and he's like the focal point. So people are going to him. Exactly. I think this is cool because it sounds sounds like a movie. Yeah, it is. But this was real life. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's been a lot of movies about this. (laughs) Yes. So this person that came to Dominic Dunn at this time, he was deeply frightened that something Mm. bad could happen to him. He was a recent university graduate and he was a fledgling author. And this is the story he had to tell Dominic. (gasps) Okay. This is where it gets fun. What's his name? <laughs> we Anonymous. will never know his name okay. because he'll probably be killed. He might already be dead. Oh. In 1991, Rushton Skakel, wanting to take the spotlight of suspicion off his sons, had hired a private detective service in New York called Sutton Associates to investigate Martha Moxley's murder. Okay. The agents, who were all former detectives or police officers, signed confidentiality agreements never to reveal anything they learned in the course of their investigation. Hmm. They were given access to the seven Skickle children and were guaranteed cooperation in a way that the Greenwich police had never had. The agency worked for nearly three years on this assignment. The source told Dominic that the bill for the private investigation was $750,000. Okay. Dominic said he thinks it may have been even more than that. It could have been millions. I wouldn't be a private investigator now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only for the, except for they might kill you if you let it out. So Rushton, he's doing this to figure out what really happened himself yes. with his children. Right. Exactly. Okay. Just for his own peace of mind type of shit. It, I think so. And also just to know if he needs to do anything to protect them. Right. Okay. The whole reason that the Sutton report was triggered is because of that court case with William Kennedy Smith. And it all coming up and he felt like his family was being dragged out now. And then this book came out and Mm -hmm. he was like, I need to be prepared if this starts spinning up again and they come after Tommy. Maybe he didn't trust his own kids. I think so. They were rowdy. He's not really there. I think that's what it is. Is Russian's like, I need to know what happened. And if one of my kids killed them, fine. But I just need to know. So that's why he's doing this. And then this source is telling Dominic, by the way, this happened. Okay. When it came time to give the results to Rushton Skakel, the agency knew it had to pull all its finding into a cohesive report that would be easy to read and digest. And so this recent graduate, he got the job putting the detective's findings from psychiatric reports to interviews with all of the family into a narrative form. And he was also to put a timeline and profiles of the Skakel family members together. So this is just a kid who got to work on the project? Yes. That's crazy. Because he was hired several years after the private detectives who had actually done the reports, no one had thought to have him sign a confidentiality. So he had a loophole. 
Yeah. And he had read Dunn's book and he had seen him on television and he thought this was the guy. So he had secretly appropriated a copy of the report and he gave it to Dominic <gasps> Dunn. Wow. So now Dominic Dunn has the report that was never to see the light of day. No, it was just for the dad. So when the report was presented to Rushton Skakel, it indicated that Tommy had not killed Martha Moxley. Okay. But Michael, the 15-year-old Skakel son, who had never been seen as a suspect because he had a solid alibi, he had been at his cousin's watching Monty Python. Right. He was shown as the probable killer. Well, we need to remember that he wasn't at his cousin's until 5 a.m. Right. That's why time of death is going to become important because we're going to start talking about this. Okay. So the report suggested that Tommy may have helped his brother in moving the body or something like that, Uh, but he did not kill her. Okay. Michael and Tommy, as I said before, were very competitive and they fought constantly. We know Michael had a crush on Martha and we know that Tommy was moving in on that territory. Mm -hmm. Rushton Skakel, who I said earlier was an acknowledged alcoholic, he was presumably completely undone by these findings. Mm. He paid the agency extra money. supposedly, to make sure the report was stashed away never to see the light of day. Mm. The man that approached Dominic Dunn, he said he just became emotionally involved in the story, especially as he saw Martha Moxley and he thought of her mother. And he was just outraged that justice would not be done. Right. And that money could make such a difference in a murder case. And he wanted to make sure it got out there. So he's the hero of the story. We don't know who he is because the Kennedy family would kill him. Got chief among the revelations in the report that was given to Dominic Dunn was the fact that during interviews conducted by the Sutton Associates, investigators and attended by Skakel family lawyers, both Tommy and Michael changed their alibis for the night of Martha's murder. Hmm. Tommy had originally stated that at 9.30 p.m. he talked to Martha by the back door and then went inside to do homework. Right. Here's something I didn't mention. In the initial investigation, it seemed like a weak alibi because Tommy was not a great student (laughs) and he didn't didn't even have school the next day. Okay. He had said something like he was doing a book report about Abraham Lincoln (laughs) and they went and talked to the school yeah. Teachers and they're like, we never assign anything like that. Okay. So it was established he was lying for some reason. Okay. But they had looked past it initially, the cops did, because they had a counter alibi from Ken Littleton, the tutor, mm. stating that he had watched TV with Tommy around 10 p.m. And they said that it has to be at least 10 that she died. That was his initial story. Here's his new story. He said instead of going inside to work on homework, he actually stayed outside and he and Martha begin kissing and messing around sexually. Okay. We'll call it, I guess, second base. Basically, hands and pants kind of stuff. They weren't having sex, but they were, yeah, playing around. He said they were in the backyard of the Skakel property from 930 until about 10 p.m. This statement actually placed Tommy with Martha at the exact time the police believe she was murdered. Now, they believe she was murdered around 9.45 p.m. because that's when the dog started barking. Oh, okay. Why would he have lied about this in the initial questioning? Well, because her pants were down. They think that Tommy being 17 and her being 15 and like him being afraid of his dad Mm -hmm. and, and all of that, he didn't want it to be known that they were messing around. Yeah. So that's all he changed about his story. I don't think that really says anything except for he was a 17 year old kid that didn't want to talk about having messed around with the girl that was dead. Yeah. And it makes sense for a 17 year old to be afraid. Sure. Because that also would have placed him with her later than he said. And and it would have made him look more guilty. Right. So I think that's really all it was about Tommy. And that may have been why he failed the initial polygraph test. I was nervous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Or he was hiding something. Yeah. He didn't fail the first. It was just inconclusive, inconclusive or whatever. Yeah. But if they probably... asked him a question about his alibi that he lied about. Right. He might have been anticipating a certain question. That question never came or something. Like, yes. were you sexually involved with Martha? So Michael had also changed his story. He said that he did go to the Tureen household to watch Miney Python, but he stated that once he returned home around 11.30 p.m., he did not go to bed, which was what he originally told the cops. Okay. He went out to peep in windows. Uh, He was a peeping Tom. Ugh, gross. Apparently there was a neighbor lady that would walk around the house naked. (laughs) <laughs> and he would go visit Desperate her housewives. House. <laughs> he would go visit her house often to watch her walk around naked. He's a 15 year old boy in the 1970s. They didn't have the internet. But kind that, of makes that's sense. That's a show for the type of person he was, though. Like he felt like he was powerful enough to get to see a woman's body whenever he wanted. Yeah. Peeping okay. toms are yeah. usually problematic. Yeah. Michael was 15 years old and he was like at that point where he hadn't really hit puberty yet. So he was still like five foot two and was still kind of more little boy than man. Right. And Tommy was 17 and he was like tall and blonde and like Mm. muscular, had the deeper voice. He had already hit puberty and like grown up. a bad boy. Yeah. So he was like probably going to be the one that ladies would be more attracted to because Michael just hadn't gone through it yet. He looked like a little boy. Mm -hmm. So I think Martha probably saw Michael as a friend that liked her and every girl likes to be liked Mm -hmm. and then tommy was the actual was the older big boy right he's not that much older like a couple years yeah he says that night he went to see if that woman was walking around naked he never said who it was and he said she was lying on her couch but she had clothes on that night so he was like damn it (laughs) don't get to see (laughs) boobies tonight So at that moment, he decided he would wander over to the Moxley household to try and steal a kiss from Martha instead. Why would she just give him a kiss? I don't know. He's going to go try. Apparently he was trying all summer. He says he climbed a tree and threw rocks at her window. Oh, my God. But she never woke up. Here's an interesting thing, too. He climbed up the tree. He couldn't get to the third floor. So he was actually throwing rocks at like a second floor room, which was probably her brother's room. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which I just think is kind of funny. If this is even true. This is just what Michael says he was doing. If anybody answered, it probably would have been John and not Martha. (laughs) He wasn't home yet, though, right? He may have been out looking because for his sister he was right then. It was 1120. Right. So that's exactly nobody was there. So if he did climb this tree and all of that, there's also some thought that the woman he was peeping on was Martha's mom. Oh, because he said the woman was like laying downstairs watching TV. And that's exactly what <gasps> that's Martha's what mom was doing. was doing. So I think that's kind of curious. And then maybe Martha saw him peeping and she got attacked by him. She should be, she's dead by now. It's 11.30 p.m. We don't know that she's yes. dead. But she didn't go in her house yet. Where was no, she? No, maybe she was walking home still. Maybe she was just, I don't know, taking her time. And then she caught him doing his creepy bullshit. I don't know, though. She's only five minutes away from home. And Tommy said her and him finished messing around around 10 well, o'clock. Maybe. And he was back inside in time to watch oh, TV with Ken. With Ken. Okay. So it's a stretch that she would be out at 11.30 at this point. Okay. She's dead. Okay. By now. I think he's making up a story. Ah, gotcha. So this is just his story. Why is his story that he's a peeper? That's a bad story. Well, we're going to talk about that. Okay. Why indeed would Why you admit indeed, to being a peeper? As you said in an episode once, twice, and it was cool. Why <laughs> indeed? <laughs> Don't you worry. I have some answers. He was throwing rocks at the window. Martha never came out. And then he decided, and he admitted to this, which I think is... He admitted to masturbating on the tree or pleasuring himself, however you want to say it. The fuck, little kid. And he said while he was sitting there jacking off, (laughs) um, 
he heard some commotion in the side yard of the Moxley household, which would have been where the murder took place. So he's saying he's sitting there, you know, playing pocket pool. And then he heard something. <laughs> pocket pool? I've never heard it that way. <laughs> And then he's saying he heard something. Maybe he thought if he said a story so ridiculous, they'd believe him. Yes. Okay. So he mentions that he yelled out to see if someone was there. And he even threw a few rocks over that way, but no one responded. Okay. He then climbs down from the tree and heads back home. Instead of going in through the front door, he says the front door was locked, which that's suspicious. Nobody locked their front doors in Belhaven. For him to say, I couldn't get in, the front doors were locked, seemed kind of a stretch too. He climbed up the side of the house into a second floor bedroom, and he believes he's back at home and in bed around 1230 a.m. So that's what he told his family detectives. Okay. Now this information, Dunn had this report, and he's like, what do I do with it? Mm -hmm. How do I get it out there? Now there was a man named Mark Furman. If any of you are familiar with the O.J. Simpson case, you might recognize him. I'm not super familiar. Mm -hmm. I didn't recognize him. But he was the disgraced detective from the O.J. Simpson case. Okay. He was criticized as being the reason O.J. Simpson got off. Oh. Is because he was a cop, and I don't know the whole story, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to try and tell it, but apparently he made a lot of racial slurs, and oh. it was caught on tape, and okay. they said that the whole reason OJ had been profiled as the murderer is because this cop was racist. Okay. Well, that cop was Mark Furman, mm. and he was fired and made a big deal. We all know OJ Simpson killed his wife. But, yeah. And so this was like a way for him to get away with it. And then Mark's career, I mean, he shouldn't have been saying racial slurs no. in any way. But he actually was a good detective. And so what he had been doing since the OJ Simpson case is he had been studying open cold cases okay. as a detective and trying mm-hmm. to figure out what could have happened and okay. like put his theories out there. Yeah. He was working with the same agent as Dominic Dunn, like the same book agent. Mm. And she happened to mention to Dunn that this guy, Mark Furman, was looking for his next story. Oh, okay. Once again, it's like this whole cosmic thing coming together. Meant to happen. And Dominic is like, I have a story for him. And so Mark got his hands on the case and then he was able to get all of the public information from the Greenwich Police Department. He flew to Connecticut and stayed there for a couple of months and did all this research research on Martha Moxley. Mm -hmm. He says that the Greenwich Police Department did not want to talk to him. They were very like shut off and didn't seem to want him poking his nose around. (laughs) Money and power, you know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mark Furman did write the book. In fact, many would credit the book, which finally exposed the Sutton report to the world as the driving factor that led to the investigation and eventual apprehension of Michael Skakel as prime suspect in this ice cold case. Okay. And Mark Furman was quoted as saying, and I think this is funny too, he said, the great irony is that the Sutton report for which Rushton Skakel paid so much money for in order to have his son Tommy's name cleared was the very thing that brought Michael's mm-hmm. indictment. Yeah, implicated it is on their son. <laughs> he said without this Sutton yeah. report being done, the case would have never right. been brought up again. He said mm-hmm. it probably would have just been forgotten. Right. So Furman's book is called Murder in Greenwich, and it's actually the main book that I read when researching this case. Okay. And it was published in 1998. And it accused, clearly, Michael Skakel of murdering Martha Moxley. And he also said that the Skakel family knew this, and they banded together to cover it up. 
Hmm. Furman's theory after studying the case was that Michael was the one responsible and that Tommy and maybe even Ken Littleton knew and or helped with cleaning up the mess. Like he just had a fit of rage and... And they knew that he had problems. Yeah. He theorized that Michael was jealous when he came home early and saw Martha and Tommy Mm. messing around in the backyard. Right. He went to his cousins. He didn't really want to go because he knew Martha was staying home with Tommy. So he could have walked home from his cousin's house. Literally just left right away. And then he comes home Mm -hmm. and he finds his brother on top of Martha like, Mm -hmm. and they're messing around. Right. He goes into a rage. He's also been drinking all night. Let's not forget about that. Both mm-hmm. Skagel boys had been drinking. Right. And everything I read, they had been drinking pretty excessively. I can already picture it. He comes home. He's not hurting anybody yet, but he's like, what the fuck? And so she's really uncomfortable. And so she's like, I'm going home. Yes. And they get into a little fight, the two of them, the boys. And Tommy's just telling him to calm the fuck down or whatever. Goes inside. Sits down and Michael's still out there fuming. And instead of going inside, he runs after her towards her house and he kills her. Michael sees that, just like you said, he'd been drinking. And we know that Michael, and this is in his medical records, he is known to have violent blackouts when drinking. Okay. Same thing. He saw that they got into a tiff. Who knows what happened? But at some point he grabs a golf club. He was the main one that would use those to kill neighborhood cats. He bragged about it. Yeah. So he went after Martha as she was walking back to her house. He confronted her in the driveway. And at that time, he just knocked her once with the golf club. And she probably just fell down. It probably knocked her out. Just that initial blow. And then he maybe went into a violent Mm -hmm. whatever. And so at that time, he drags her because she's knocked out. He drags her over to the first little tree area. And that's where the major violent attack took place. He was out of control. He was maniacal, like... Everybody said he bludgeoned her to death. Mark Furman believes that Michael was upset because she had been sexually messing around with his brother and she had never let him do that. So at that time, he pulls her pants down. Oh, to humiliate her, do something to her. He thinks he pulls her pants down and masturbates like he gets excited because he's seeing her naked. So he's kind of telling the truth with the fucking tree thing because he masturbated. He then left the crime scene to go back to his house. He couldn't get into the front door because he had blood all over his clothes. He couldn't just walk in in mm-hmm. front of his sister and everything. So that's why he climbed the window in his bedroom. Perhaps he cleaned up. Maybe he told mm. Tommy. Maybe he started coming into like more of a lucid state. Maybe he told Tommy what had happened and he was like, I don't know what to do. And at that time, Tommy went and helped move the body. There is a lot of thought about the fact that at the time, Michael Skakel was only five foot two and he was probably like 120 pounds. He wasn't a very big kid. Okay. So there was some speculation that he would not have been able to drag her body as far as it was by oh, himself. Okay. If you're having a moment, you can. Right. I'm thinking if, you know, because we're saying that Tommy and Ken, maybe they had something to do with it. I'm thinking what could have also happened is just they knew it was him. And then they tried to Like help. they weren't really part of it. They might have not even helped. But, they but when they found capable. out she was dead the next day. And what had happened right before, it's like they knew it was him. But they're not going to say anything because it's family. And when the police initially profiled who the murderer was, they right off the bat said this was somebody who knew her. They also said that someone had to have known the property pretty well and 
I was about to get into this, like where she was first attacked would have been very obvious. Mm -hmm. If anybody drove by, there was lighting there. So they had to move her body. And only somebody who lived in the neighborhood would Would have thought of that to move it. I don't know. Mark Furman believes that the actual attack happened later than the cops had set for her time of death. He thinks the attack could have been anywhere between 10 and 11 p.m. He was talking about, you know, Tommy's talking about messing around with this girl. And he's like, you don't know. They could have been out there till 1030. He could have come in and watched TV with Ken and then gone back and met her outside. Like, think about the things you were doing at 14 and 15. She Mm -hmm. could have been like, oh, I'm going to go home. And then Mm -hmm. we're going to go meet back out. Like she could have they could have had something like that that they were going to do. And then Michael kind of got in between. And if it was between 10 and 11, that's good timing of dragging her because her brother mm-hmm. was coming home and then he was leaving again. And if it was near the driveway, her brother didn't come home till 1120 p.m. So well, I think she yeah. was killed before her brother came home. Yeah, that's has to be because if the main source of her blood was near the driveway. So it's also believed that Ken Littleton might have heard or seen something because where he was hanging out in the TV room, there was like a front balcony that would have been a very clear view of the Moxley driveway. So they wonder if that's why Ken maybe had so much guilt and everything. Maybe he he heard something and he stepped outside Mm -hmm. and he saw Michael beating her and he didn't know what to do. He's working for one of the most prominent families. It's his first day. Exactly. That's crazy. So let's go back to Michael changing his story. Remember, he added in this part about masturbating in the tree on the Moxley property. He also said he was like throwing rocks at someone he heard and he uh, he mentioned like running back to the house and that he was like under the there's a street light between the houses. I didn't go into such detail but mm-hmm. basically it sounds like he was making up a story that could be plausible in case anyone came back and said but I saw Michael right at the Moxley house at this time right. he was out in the driveway I saw him under the light hmm. throwing the rocks if somebody said I saw him swinging oh. something like a golf yeah, club right. and then also if they happened to find sperm anywhere no because he was jacking off Oh, because I was jacking oh. off in the tree outside what did you of call her it? pocket pool. Yeah, <laughs> pocket <laughs> I've never heard that. It's so funny. <laughs> I was, you know, pleasuring myself out here, and that's why right. there's DNA. So okay. that was Mark's whole theory to why mm-hmm. Michael made the story that he made, and honestly, kind of makes sense to me. It makes sense. Yep. So this book, and partly with Mark Furman advocating for Martha Moxley, they put together a grand jury in <gasps> oh, September wow. of 1998. Okay. The new publicity about the case, as well as the possibility of a reward, all of a sudden brought out other witnesses. Okay. Including several people who had attended the Elan School in rural Maine with Michael Skakel in the late 1970s. Mm. Now, Elan was a residential drug treatment facility where harsh punishments, including physical and emotional abuse form the core of a behavior modification technique for those kids that were just considered out of control. Mm-hmm. And Michael had been sent there after Martha Moxley's death. Oh, okay. Now, there were two classmates that said Michael had made confessional statements to them. In addition, Ken Littleton, he testified before the grand jury in exchange for immunity. Okay. What does he (laughs) owe this fucking family? I mean, I guess he did stay there a year after this. Yeah. It bonds you helping cover murders. (laughs) He's like, I don't know what to fucking do. Michael Skakel had been arrested for drunk driving in New York State in 1978, so three years after Martha Moxley's murder. And this is when his family sent him to a lawn school to avoid criminal charges. Did he kill someone? No, but I think he was underage and okay. drunk driving. I don't know. It didn't say anything like that, well, but... okay. 
They also said he was an alcoholic and he would be receiving treatment for alcoholism. Now, while he was at the Elan School in Maine, he ran away from the school twice. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was known to be a pretty abusive environment for mm-hmm. the kids that were there. There's also thought that the Skakel family may have known that Michael had a part in Martha's murder Mm -hmm. and shipping him off to Maine would be a good place to hide him so he would never come Um, under suspicion. Okay. So the grand jury was a single juror and she had the rights to decide the fate for Michael Skakel. Uh Sure. So she listened to all of the testimonies and about his whereabouts on the night of the Moxley murder. So the police reports had included witness statements saying that he was at the Tureen's house, but now when they were able to view these statements, they started to think there might have been a cover-up for Michael's alibi. Mm-hmm. George Ann Dowdle, she was Jimmy Tureen's sister, said she was at the house with her daughter and her boyfriend when Jimmy came home, and she could not recall seeing Michael with the group of kids. Okay. Michael Skakel was arrested on January 19th, 2000, and he was initially charged with murder as a minor because he was 15 years old at the time of Martha's death. Right. In February of 2001, a judge ordered Skakel to be tried as an adult, stating that the juvenile system wasn't equipped to punish a defendant who was nearly 40 years old. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) True. Three days after Michael Skakel was indicted, Robert Kennedy Jr. came forward and he was quoted in the New York Times as saying that Dominic Dunn and Mark Furman were just after the Kennedy family again, and they were just trying to make money. So now it becomes that. We forgot about you, dude. Shut up. He felt like like they had a personal vendetta against the Kennedy family and anyone with wealth. I do. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) A renowned author with close ties to the Kennedy family said that the Kennedys were so distressed when Michael Skakel was identified in the press as the nephew of Ethel and Robert Kennedy because it dragged the Kennedy name into a murder case in which they had no involvement whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is true. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, had it not been for the Kennedy connection, the story probably wouldn't have gotten so much interest. Right. And even led to the arrest in the first place. Of course, they're pissed, though, not just because of that, because they're like, crap, if one of us can get taken down, what are they going to find out from the rest of (laughs) us? Because you know they got some skeletons. Of course they do. Literally, go find them. (laughs) So Skakel's actual trial began in Bridgeport, Connecticut Superior Court on May 2002. He was represented by a man named Michael Sherman. He went by Mickey Sherman. He was a well-regarded attorney. He's like, I don't want to go by Michael in this. I'm Mickey. (laughs) The prosecutors had no eyewitnesses to the crime or evidence directly linking Skakel to the murder. They built this case around circumstantial evidence, including Skakel's statements to his Elan classmates, his past erratic behavior. Mm -hmm. And then his own words were actually on tape about him being outside the Moxley's window that night and masturbating. He had actually made a tape because he was going to write a book himself. Oh, cool out living near Martha Moxley when she was killed. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What the fuck are you going to write? That's so ridiculous. Gregory Coleman was one of the witnesses that came forward and he had been assigned to guard Michael Skakel at the Elan school after he tried to run away. He testified before the grand jury and at a probable cause hearing that Skakel had told him, I am going to get away with murder because I am a Kennedy. Okay. And your name's not Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) And that he had beaten a girl's head in with a golf club. Mm. But Coleman didn't testify at the trial. He died of a heroin overdose. Oh, no. But his testimony was still read into the record and it was admitted. Another Elan student, John Higgins, testified that Skakel had talked about a murder he was somehow involved in. 
A neighbor and friend of Martha and the Skakels at the time testified that Michael had a crush on Martha and was very jealous of Tommy's potential relationship with her. Other witnesses recall conversations where Skakel had said he had killed before or done something horrible. Okay. We know he had killed the cats, but they were saying, no, he said he'd done other things. So Hmm. I don't know what that means. Okay. Remember Helen and Jeffrey that they were the ones who said they saw Tommy. Right. His last one. So they also showed up in this trial and they came back and said at this point, they did not remember Michael leaving with the other kids to Jimmy Tureen's house. So his alibi was coming under attack and there were several people saying, I don't know, you know, you had Jimmy's sister and now Helen and Jeffrey are like, you know what? I don't remember for sure if he went or not. He may have gone back in the house. Because really all they said was the rough housing, like silliness between the two of them. They didn't mention Michael. There was another person from Elan that said Michael Skakel would brag to him about going peeping in the neighborhood Mm. and saying that Skakel had seen other people in the neighborhood and also claiming that he had seen Martha showering and dressing before. Okay. So it wasn't the first time. So he already has this like very sick. It's a dark like connection to her. He feels Mm -hmm. like he knows her because he's seen her naked already. I think so. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So after all of these witnesses came forward on June 7th, 2002, after four days of deliberation, the jury convicted Skakel of murder and he was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Okay. How old is he now? I forget. He's like 41 when he was convicted. I Mm -hmm. just said 20. Sorry. Skakel then began a series of appeals through the Connecticut and federal courts. In 2010, he filed a state petition. The petition said that Mickey Sherman, his lawyer, had been ineffective in numerous areas, including a failure to adequately investigate and raise third-party culpability claims against several possible suspects. I don't know what, including Thomas Skakel. So I guess he's saying there was other people that were more likely in his lawyer. So now he's throwing his brother under the bus, too? Pretty much. Okay. He also showed that there was a flawed jury selection in that one of the jurors had police connections and shouldn't have been on the jury. In the court, they also played these audio tapes that I mentioned that he supposedly recorded in secret for his own book. So he brought that up in the appeal and said those audio tapes were my legal property and they should not have been used in a case against me. That is true. Which is true. But if you're admitting to a murder, <laughs> I mean, it's... Uh, hmm. He also claimed, and this was part that I didn't mention earlier, is that the Elan School testimonies from those students should have been thrown out because it was such a destructive and abusive nature. The school had been closed down for this. He was saying you can't believe any witnesses from there because they were all traumatized. They were all and, fucking crazy. And they were all making stuff up. During this time, also, Mickey Sherman, his lawyer, pled guilty in U.S. District in Connecticut for failing to pay $390,000 in taxes. And he was sentenced to a year in federal prison. So that made the lawyer look like an inept guy. Yeah, not really. He just doesn't want to pay taxes. I mean, nobody wants to pay taxes. (laughs) So while these appeals were pending, here comes Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr. came forward and he released his own book on the case entitled Framed, Why Michael Skakel Spent Over a Decade in Prison for a Murder He Didn't Commit. Okay. So Kennedy said his cousin was innocent and that the likely suspects were two teenagers from New York who had been in the neighborhood on mischief night. And according to a friend had said they wanted to just attack a girl caveman style. Yeah, because that's what people say all the time. 
<laughs> so this story, I'm not even going to go into many details because I don't think it's credible at all. But anyway, supposedly these were friends of Tony Bryant, who is actually Kobe Bryant's brother. Okay. Because they lived in the area. They were a wealthy family. And these two boys were black. Oh, okay. They did come into the neighborhood that night mm-hmm. because they were friends. To me, this was like a complete race baiting they thing. They were trying. Where to they were like, there were two black them. boys yeah. in Bellhaven. You know, black boys should never be in Bellhaven. Mm-hmm. And they had to have been the one that killed Martha. Gotcha. So these two boys had come to like some dances. They had met Martha, but there wasn't really that much of a connection. Yeah. It, it seemed pretty much like the age old trope of let's try and pin this murder right. on the nearest black person that we can find. Right. Okay, but that is a book that's out there and you can read that if you want. I read the summary of it. I did not read the whole book. He has an actual reason to write a book and say that because he does not want the Kennedy name to be dragged anymore and associated. I mean, he already has one cousin who's in prison for rape and he has another cousin now for killing a 15 year old girl. He's just trying to say Kennedy's. He's trying to say that there is this whole like vendetta against the Kennedy family and they just try and, you know, arrest people and murder them and all of that because they're Kennedy's or you're just bad people. One of the two. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Prosecutors said that the book was inflammatory and some outside observers suggested that the book was written for a specific audience and that included the justices who were considering the appeal for Michael Skakel. So they think there was like reason for how it came out and when. Okay. And it worked. Oh, geez. So during this appeal and Robert Kennedy's writing this book, it did get to Judge Thomas Bishop of the Superior Court. And he decided they had a real story here. And so he vacated Skakel's conviction, which let him out of jail, actually, on October 13th, 2013. So he'd been in jail now for 11 years. Okay. They would let him out of jail. And then if they wanted to prosecute him for this murder, they would have to put together a new trial. Okay. How do you just get vacated out of jail? If you appeal enough. Why wasn't Emmanuel allowed to get out of jail? Well, it's very different when you are a rich skakel of (sighs) Connecticut and you are a minority man who has no money. So the reason that he overturned this is because he said Mickey Sherman did not do his due diligence. Because remember, I talked about Jimmy's sister saying that she did not remember Michael Skakel being at the house watching Monty Python. Right. Well, there was one person they didn't talk to, and that was her boyfriend who was also there. Okay. Now he says Michael Skakel was at the house that night. Why? Bros be bros? I don't know. He said he was. Okay. And he was willing to testify. And so because Hmm. of that one little detail, that's why Judge Thomas Bishop decided that a retrial was due because... One person? And all the other things I said earlier. I guess I shouldn't have made it just this one thing. But that was like a very clear way for him to say Mickey Sherman was an inept lawyer and he didn't get the defense. Mm. Here's what I think is interesting is they're saying that Michael Skakel didn't get the defense that he deserved, but he like fucking hired this guy. It's not like it was a public defender. Right, exactly. They're made of freaking money. <laughs> you hired a, a shitty lawyer. You got a conviction that you weren't expecting. You right. thought you were going to get acquitted. Then you got arrested and then you're yeah. like, oh, wait a minute. The lawyer fucked it up. It was the lawyer's so, fault. I think so. And this boyfriend, for all we know, he's not as well off as these families exactly. and he's like, <laughs> Ooh, give me money. I'll say whatever That's you what want I'm me to say. He could have been paid off. Right. Anybody could have been paid off in this. So when Skakel was released from prison, 
there was a bail of $1.2 million because even though he was released, it doesn't mean that he's off forever. He was just released until the next trial could happen. $1.2 million, no big deal for his family. Sure. Now they tried and tried and tried to put together the case again, Mm -hmm. but it fell apart. They couldn't put it back together. In fact, all the people that they needed to bear witness in testimonies, 17 of them were dead at this point. Oh, okay. 17 as in old age or 17 as where'd they go? They were just dead at this point. Some of them died from drugs, some of them from old age. I mean, at this point, he went into jail at 41. He was in there for 11 years. So Michael's 52. So some of these, you know, older people could have died. Oh, the appearance and stuff? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there weren't enough witnesses. They didn't have enough actual evidence. It was all very circumstantial to begin with. And the witnesses that would have been the ones to put him away like they did the first time weren't there. So on October 30th, 2020... Ironically, the day exactly 45 years after Martha Moxley was killed, they dismissed the charge against Skakel. So Michael was completely dismissed. He is not seen as the perpetrator in this crime. And so we're talking about him. So (laughs) right. So now Martha Moxley's case is still classified as open Mm -hmm. and cold. Poor girl snuffed out because of ego jealousy. I just think back to when I was in that age and I think about like a boy who wanted to date me and I wasn't interested. That -hmm. happened all the time. I'm not saying for me, I'm saying anyone at that age. It's like every girl had some boy that wanted to be more than friends and you you didn't want to. And who's to know how crazy they actually are? I mean, this boy is real crazy, but the whole family is. And well, money fucks things up when you're made of money like this, especially children. They didn't have a mom anymore. You know, mm-hmm. like they didn't have any kind of womanly source. I mean, they had their sister, but she's still a kid. She's 18. Too. Yeah. You know, they don't have anyone to see. Oh, this is how you treat people. Right. Their dad's gone all the time. There's a lot of fuck things up with no, res- no recourse. No authority. Like, yeah. I think in the beginning, the Greenwich police may have known something more. Mm-hmm. I think that Rushton probably knew. Yeah. If you have seven children, you exactly. probably know which one of them is the bad seed. Tommy was like being looked at that way because he didn't want to be in school and stuff. But you know which one's the fucked up one. There were multiple staff members interviewed that said Tommy never. Right. Michael. Fuck yeah. Michael would do it. He's the evil one that stares at us and says things to us when no one's paying attention. There were stories of him jumping on the family dog and like beating (gasps) the dog up and holding him down. They said he would go into fit where nobody knew how to get him out of it. Like he was just uncontrollable. And this was from a young age. So by 15. He wasn't the one with the head injury. No. Okay. Maybe he had one. Who knows? Tommy was just the free, happy kid. He's like, fuck school. I'm he rich. Was a wild it doesn't boy. matter. Yeah. You know? He was a wild boy in a different way. He was the ladies man, yeah. maybe. And wild in that way. And Martha was just a cute little She's girl pretty. that yeah. every boy wanted to date. I saw an interview because they did this story on 48 Hours. And there was a little boy or he was a little boy that was friends with Martha mm-hmm. at the time. And he was like, everybody had a crush on Martha. Yeah. Everybody wanted to date her. She was the it girl. Right. He's like, yeah, of course, Michael had a crush on her. Of course, Tommy had a crush it. on her. Yeah. What the heck? I want to go back to Dorothy Moxley. Yeah. What is she? Well, this was 19. How old was she? In 2018, when the conviction was overturned, they actually did an interview with Dorothy Moxley. And she said, the experience has just been like a yo-yo. 
Yeah. And she said that the ruling on Friday was a disappointment. But she's like, I'm just so conditioned at this point. One thing happening and then something else happening. And she's like, if something else happens, it just won't surprise me in the least at this point. So she's kind of like, whatever. She's like, it's they like, have I've money. Seen it like, all. there's nothing I can do. It doesn't matter. So in 2018, when Michael was, I guess, acquitted, I don't know what the other word is. She was 86 years old. Oh, she said she's satisfied that she has advocated justice on her daughter's behalf for most of her life. And she was able to get her daughter's case in the public eye. She said, I did all those things, but I don't feel as though that's my job now. She's like, we got him arrested and convicted and put in jail. It isn't my job now because they were asking if she was going to push to try and get him back in. Oh. And she's like, I've done enough. She's yeah. like, it's enough. And she's 86 years old. She's what, 86. Like, my goodness. And that was in 2018 that she was 86. So it's five years later. I don't know. I couldn't find anywhere. I was trying to find out if she was still alive today, but I could not mm. find that because she would be 91 if she is still alive today. Yeah. But she had to live that whole life without her sweet, precious daughter. Yeah. Because of one spoiled rich kid. I don't know. Yeah. What spoiled. With and behavioral problems. Up. Yeah. His family knew that. Why didn't right. they ship him off to Elan or wherever the fuck before, before this happened? They probably had an inkling what it could turn to at some point in his life, but I don't think they knew he was that capable right then and there. With a golf club. Right. That's a pretty to a brutal. But, but you know what? been doing it to animals. And I don't know if his family and the staff knew he was killing local animals. He was bragging mm. to friends about that. Okay. Which I guess maybe that was cool in the 70s, but like, I'm just imagining if a friend's like, yeah, I like went and like bashed in the head of a cat last night. I'd be like, you're fucked. Like they probably did say you're fucked, but you're rich and we get to have fun. So I'm not, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And remember the friend of Martha's that told her that she was Stay a little away scared from of them. them. It's so interesting. And I look at this whole family and the rest of them, like they didn't do anything. There was just these two. And yeah. I don't think Tommy was really a bad he just, kid. The only reason he got brought into it is because he was the last one with her. Yeah. That anyone saw. Correct. I don't really have a formal conclusion written up here. No, no, it's Michael. I think Michael probably did it. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't make any other sense. I wonder if Tommy and Ken knew. I mean, covered. they might have known and just helped a little bit, but I don't think either one had anything to do with it. Neither did the visiting friends, Brian's friends or whatever that was. It's Michael. I think maybe Ken saw something mm -hmm. or he just knew deep in his stomach that that happened. Maybe he saw some bloody clothes. Who knows? Who knows? And, and it wrecked his life because yeah. he lived with that, but he was afraid of the Skakel family. Right. He's nobody you know? compared and to them. Right. There was a lot of talk, though. I'm like, if Michael had done it, he would have had blood all over his clothes. Like, where did all of that go? It doesn't matter. It's a huge mansion. It they is. They could have done anything with it. Burned it. Yes. Scooped it up. Buried it somewhere. Buried it somewhere. Yep. But also, the police didn't go straight to the Skakel household and start searching it. They oh, waited days. Right. They had plenty of time to get rid of evidence. The other interesting thing is when Mark Furman came to Connecticut and was like out researching for his book he said that there were several people in the town that told him that they know where the handle of the golf club was hidden what the heck and they said many people knew where it was and he said cool tell me where it's at and the lady he was referencing she was like oh nobody will ever tell you so <sighs> I think it was like this open secret that people yeah. knew it was probably Michael yeah or Tommy. I think they went back and forth as the town. They just mm -hmm. knew the Skakel family was definitely involved. Right. And that club was being hidden somewhere. Maybe it was being hidden by the police. Who knows? Like, 
it was mm. referenced as being there. I hold on to it. Why are you not like melting it? I'm confused. I don't know why you would hide it <laughs> unless it's like a trophy or something. Yeah, maybe it is. They like think of it that way. Hmm. Or they hold it over their head. It might be, yeah, a source of negotiation, blackmail. Yeah, like a source of blackmail or something. It could be. Mm-hmm. It could be someone like, I know you did this and I have the golf club. And think about it. You Maybe got it's the, the Kennedys. <laughs> the <laughs> Kennedys are like, stop fucking up our name. I'm going to hold on to this. <laughs> Something's right. going to happen. Or think about it. You're just like somebody in the neighborhood who finds the golf club. And then you're like, oh, I have this, by the way. Mm-hmm. If anything happens to me or my family. exactly, It is like in a lockbox that you will never know. It's and it will be released. Paris. Right. It's in another country, but I have it. And you will all go down. Mm-hmm. Pay me money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, But crazy case. This is just an idea. You know, we talk about all these police cases where people without money are wrongly convicted or, you know, minorities or whatever. This is the other side of it. People with money, white privilege Mm -hmm. is all over this case. All over. This continues to happen now. Yeah. Rich kids get away with things all the time. It reminds me of other stories I've heard. And it reminds me of the show Succession on HBO. If anybody's watched that, you'll know what I'm talking about, but I won't spoil it. Like rich kids get away with things all the time. All the time. That's a crazy story. There's so many weird like similarities between between like this one and the one I did. But even like just tying it back, all these like even Anthony, just weird things coming in and out. This story had no DNA. Which should also be a little suspect if that you think is about it. suspect, but it wasn't the time yet. It was the 70s. Yeah. Have we really covered DNA in the 70s yet? No. I don't no. think so. But Michael made up a story to try and cover up in case yeah. DNA got far enough along. So, right. I'm already a sicko. And if I was that sick, I'd just tell you I did it. <laughs> yeah. I'm admitting to this. Well, here's one thing that I can say from this case is at least Michael Skakel did spend 11 years in prison. Yeah. At least he did some time. It's not good enough in my opinion for what he did right he's like the oj simpson now like everybody knows he probably did it right and he has to walk around with that for the rest of his life he is still alive today he's gone kind of into hiding from what i found like he got out of prison and then went into the woods somewhere and we'll never hear from him again he was like married he had kids his wife divorced him as soon as he got convicted and oh oh yeah because he was 40 Yes. Okay. Lived a whole life by the time he got convicted. He got to live his whole life. Martha Dennett. Right. She died at 15 for no reason. For no reason. Poor little Martha was just going to go out for a night, come home and put together some decorations for her next night Halloween party. Yeah. And instead this happened. Yeah. And that must be so hard too. not only that, but your family. You just moved from across the country to this very specific place. That was safe. That was supposed to be safe. And she's murdered in your yard. Yeah. Like the dad and the mom. Yeah. You don't get over that. How do you forgive yourself? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's horrible. That's the story. And we'll be back next Tuesday with another Halloween-ish story. (laughs) In the meantime, please go on to our social media accounts and check us out. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook, all under at Lucid Lab Podcast. Mm -hmm. Please leave us some reviews and send us your lab reports to Lucid Lab Podcast at gmail.com. We didn't mention this in the last few episodes, but if you would like to mail... P.O. Box 251 East Lake, Colorado 80614. And whatever you want to write about, nothing's off limits. Yep. We'd love to see it. Also, we do have a Patreon out there, so check it out if you would like. And anything and everything is appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. 
we're going to wrap this one up. So don't be peeping mics. Don't be a peeping mic and stay lucid. This is Halloween. Do, 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 do. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Bye. <laughs> Weird. Bye.